Bolt your windows. Lock your doors. Check your closets. Look under your bed. And then, prepare yourself. For it's another episode of Dark Night of the Podcast. Whoa! Hello, Dark Knight of the podcast, friends and fans. A few weeks ago, uh, we covered a, a film that's very near and dear to my heart. Uh, it was the, I would say, classic slasher, Valentine. And it's a movie that I know a lot of queers very much love and cherish. Wouldn't you agree, Troy? Oh, absolutely. Definitely one of the standout slashers from the early 2000s, for sure. I mean, that cast. That cast, the most beautiful cast. It almost makes me straight in some ways. But here we are. Um, Luckily, uh, that that specific episode got us in contact with the director of that film, one Jamie Blanks. And we have him here today to talk with us about another film that happens to be my favorite slasher of that era, the timeless urban legend. Jamie, thank you so much for joining us. Hey, it's my pleasure, guys. Thanks for having me on. Yes, thank you so, so much. We are so excited to have you join us oh, because we are pleasure. both no, we are both huge fans of Urban Legend and Valentine, and we're not just saying that because you're on. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Seriously, we love both of these films. Oh, well, I'm, that's awesome. I've been waiting to cover Urban Legend for a hot minute, and I was like, when do I throw this tight title out? Because it really, it really is my favorite of the era. And when do I like, when is the appropriate time to cover it? So now like it just absolutely makes sense. I'm so excited to have you here to talk about it because it's a movie that really shaped and defined my love for the genre. And I think that out of all the slashers of that era to come out, it it so masterfully plays upon something that we already have such a curiosity about uh, as a society, as a culture, the urban legend. I mean, that's something that's existed before cinema. It's existed before uh, any of this. And so playing off those natural fears we have, what a great setup. And it makes for such a great uh, story and a great film. Oh, thank you. Well, I, when I read the screenplay, I um, my first comments to the studio was, why hasn't anyone thought of doing this before? It's such a brilliant idea for a slasher film. And in the wake of Scream, things had gotten very meta. Films were kind of self-aware. And it was... We needed we needed something clever uh, to to kind of follow in the wake of Wes's movie uh, that wasn't just a rehash of what he did. And I just thought using folklore was such a clever way of doing things because Silvio, there's all sorts of urban legends in that movie that he weaves in. They're not just the murders. There's urban legends all the way through. Even the first uh, scene when she's listening to Tara on the radio, all those call-ins, they're all urban legends themselves. So Silvio did a really great job of combing them all and finding uh, you know, so many great ones that work for the movie. I actually said to Silvio, God, I pity the person who has to make a sequel because you've mined them all so extensively for this movie. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, one of my first questions I have is, in regards to the script, it, it covers so much territory. Were there any specific urban legends that you wanted to include, perhaps, or were maybe in an earlier draft of the script that did not make it to the final cut? Uh, there were a couple that they looked at for the sequel, but you no, know, Sylvia and I really went through carefully 
and um, looked at all the ones that we wanted. There's the, everything in that movie are the ones that we, we, we thought would work the best. They had the, the widest kind of recognition. Like I'd heard of a lot of these urban legends in Australia. That's why I knew it was going to work because they, um, they're universal. And I think a lot of people maybe don't even realize some of these stories are urban legends until they hear them. Like they might've seen when a stranger calls, but they don't know that that was actually based on an urban legend or the film alligator is based on an urban legend. So yeah, I just thought yeah. it was a very clever way into a slasher film. How did this specific project fall into your lap? Because this, I mean, this, I know that at, at one point you were pursuing, I know what you did last summer. Is that correct? That's right. I got the screenplay for Scream sent out to me by my manager. I, I'd been ripped by a guy from Propaganda Films, which was David Fincher and Michael Bay's company where they did a lot of commercials. They, they worked out of Propaganda and they just started a management division. Uh, this guy had come out from Los Angeles to Melbourne and was, was looking at the, the graduating films of a lot of film students from New Zealand and from Australia. And he saw my uh, film Silent Number, which you can see on YouTube. And he, um, he, he asked me if, he, if, if I wanted to be ripped by um, propaganda. And I said, of course, it would be amazing. I had no way into Los Angeles. This is a wonderful chance to um, get my foot in the door there. And so I got the script for Scream. I loved that. Obviously, Wes Craven was hired to do that. And then shortly after that, I got another screenplay from Simon, my manager, which was also by Kevin Williamson. It was I Know What You Did Last Summer, and I really wanted to direct the film. And I thought, there's no way they're going to give me this movie based on my student film. I need to show them something else. Uh, so I went out. Um, I've told this story many times, but I went out and made a trailer for I Know What You Did Last Summer. I had about 10 minutes of 35mm film stock that I could get my hands on. I was working as a um, head of post-production for an Australian director called Fred Skepsy and uh, had access to a Lightworks and a camera truck. And so we went out over three weekends uh, with some actors and just shot. We only had 10 minutes of film, so I had to be very careful what I rolled on. And we just picked moments out of that script that I thought would be in the real trailer if we'd shot the whole film. And yeah, I cut this little four minute reel together for the producer, Neil Moritz, and they loved it. I came over and met with Kevin Williamson and I met with uh, an agent and um, all based on this trailer. The bad news was I got it there two weeks too late and I'd already hired a director for that film. And Jim Gillespie did an amazing job with that picture. It's a really good film. And Neil just remembered me in the back of his mind when it came um, time to do the next one. He said, look, I really loved what you did. It was really ballsy. Uh, it showed great passion. Um, it showed great technique. He really loved the, you know, the way the trailer looked. And um, he said, look, you can either direct the sequel uh, if we make one or you'll do my next uh, picture. And that uh, I thought, sure, <laughs> that will never happen. But no, about a year later, I was out mowing my lawn and my wife came out with the phone and said it was uh, Brad Luff from Neil Moritz's company on the line. And he, um, yeah, they offered me Urban Legend on the spot. It was amazing. Wow. Wow. Tell me, is that is that trailer, I'm just curious, is that something that's available anywhere for like... No, uh, uh, no there, there, there are clips of it on the um, the Scream Factory uh, Blu-ray okay. in, in the special edition. And I did make the trailer available uh, to people who purchased the soundtrack to my film Storm Warning and another soundtrack from Howling Wolf Records just as a little promotion. I did that very briefly. But no, I, I don't have it out there because... Um, there's all sorts of reasons. It's like I don't have release forms for the actors. Uh, it's it's not just something I can make commercially available. It was really just a demo to show, you know, 
um, how I would handle a script like that. Gotcha. I would just love, I would love to see your take on that material that I think would be fascinating to see, but just as a fan in general, because it's watching both Urban Legend and Valentine, it's very clear that you, I mean, A, you're a, a phenomenal um, visually creating this imagery. Uh, your, your style is very fluid. It's lovely. Oh, but you. it's clear that you have a great appreciation for the genre and a great knowledge of the genre. Um, and, and so, you know, for my own selfish reasons, I would love to see that trailer. But what what movies within the genre did you grow up on that really inspired your style and inspired your technique? Uh, that's that's a good question. I, I had there was a lot of films um, that had kind of different meaning for me at different parts of my life. Initially, as a teenager, I was just I loved slasher films. I loved Friday the Thirteenth. I was just sort of into them as movies and as um, you know things to watch with my friends. I wasn't really particularly focused on the technique not that there's a lot of technique in Friday the 13th or anything but um Halloween was definitely the first one I saw and it just scared me as a movie I wasn't really looking at it in terms of style or anything like that it was only kind of later in uh the 80s in my teens where I really started to pay attention to directors like Catherine Bigelow and Sam Raimi and just looking at the way um Catherine Bigelow moves the camera and uh, in like even Point Break and uh Blue Steel Films like that really appealed to me. I um, yeah, I just started, I started becoming much more aware of the visual side of things. So the films I started to make were a lot more uh, uh, less focused on special effects and, and and more focused on camera work and framing and and and, and moving the camera. Um, you know, I remember renting a crane uh, to shoot one of my early films that I tried to get in with uh, to film school and using this crane extensively and really starting to become aware of ways you could move the camera. And, um, yeah, it was, it was something that uh, became a huge focus of mine at film school. Uh, I was very, you know, my, my student films, very, um, uh, it's, we shot everything it's during a big rainstorm. We, we lit the actor through giant uh, glass windows that had water pouring down. So this is beautiful kind of almost like Suspiria lighting on this this beautiful girl with this 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 water dripping and it just looked gorgeous so i um i did p- place quite a lot of emphasis on style uh, at film school and really wanted to get uh, understand lenses and uh, all those kinds of things so when it came time to do my trailer and to do urban legend um i did place a very very big focus on the way the film looked i worked carefully with my cinematographer to give it a specific kind of look and like you said, a very fluid look. I, 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 don't, I, I don't want to have unmotivated moving, movement of the camera, but I always think it's a motion picture. The camera should move uh, as much as possible. So, yeah, I did. Try, I definitely worked on the, um, the look very closely with my cinematographer and my production designer. Even within the opening scene of Urban Legend, that that shines right there within the the sequence at the gas station, the the the, the you know the the sweeping crane shots in the midst of the downpour. Everything you're describing here that that shows and it shines in those even opening moments alone. It it really opens on such a strong aesthetic note. Yeah, I, I wanted to give that look straight off the bat to kind of tell the audience this is the kind of movie you're in for, and it was also kind of a strategic decision because. I was a first-time director, and I wanted the studio to see something more than just the dailies and the rushes every day. I wanted them to see a full, complete cut sequence of the movie so they would have a bit more confidence in me as a director. Because understandably, you know, they were, they were, they, they, I had their support, but, you know, I was still an untested director, and they had to keep a very close eye on what I was delivering because there's a lot of money at stake, and, you know, I, I really have to fight for my job. 
uh, initially and, and, and hang on to my job. So I decided to shoot that sequence of the movie early up. I worked with my producer, Michael McDonald, to ensure that that sequence was bumped up in the schedule. Uh, it was also it was also helpful because it gave the production designer time to work on other sets uh, that we needed while we could spend like, uh, I think we spent about three or four days on that opening sequence. So uh, that was great because I could send the studio that whole cut sequence um, uh, as kind of proof that um, I knew what I was doing <laughs> to, to a degree. Well, I mean, it, I guess the word I would use to describe urban legend and, and, and just your style in general and compared to a lot of the offerings within the genre is there's a, a level of elegance to it. I mean, this film, it, it falls within the genre as, as, as is another, you know, it is, it could just be another slasher, but it's shot with such an elegant eye and a, a, like I said, a fluidity to it. And it's just a very pretty movie within a genre that doesn't necessarily need to be pretty. So it definitely feels like you guys went above and beyond to execute a, a certain level of expertise uh, and that really does shine. Yeah. It really does. Yeah, my my, my cinematographer, um, he, he, he said, look, we, just because we're making a, a, a genre film doesn't mean we can't make a beautiful film. And I agree with him. I wanted We had these beautiful locations, um, absolutely gorgeous cast, and um, we really wanted the film to have a specific look. I mean, Scream's a wonderful film, you know, but it's not a particularly uh, overly stylish film. And I didn't want the style to overwhelm Urban Legend, but I did, I did want to inject... A little bit of a gothic feel to it, a, a, a lot of flu, fluid camera work, and just to give it a sense that you're watching a like a, a premium horror film. This isn't just some horror, you know, knock off a scream. We wanted to make it a very special film. And look, at the time, I thought maybe this is the only film I'm ever going to make. So I want to pack everything into this thing. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you know this this film came out. You, I mean, it's very interesting that you were able to get your hands on the scream script. The, I know what you did last summer script, because I would say these three films scream. I know what you did last summer and urban legend are kind of the, the pinnacle, the three pinnacle slasher films of, of the nineties completely. And I guess my, my question, it would be, you know, scream. And I know what you did last summer had major box office success. And then urban legend of course is, is a slasher film that's coming post those two films and you being a first time director did the did the studio try to have any interference or? Oh no, no, they were wonderful. They were the studio were incredible. I mean, um, they they really let me run with my choice of cast. I mean, Jared Leto was the only actor that kind of came with the project. The studio wanted him very much. Um, so every like everybody else in the film, I was able to audition and to cast myself. Uh, they let me hire my choice of technicians. They let me hire Christopher Young. Um, they were incredibly supportive. I mean, I remember getting a call from them um, after the first week or something. It was Christy Brunier, who was one of the development execs, called me up and um, said, Mike Metavoy wants to speak to you. He's the head of the studio. And Mike uh, got on the phone. He said, Jamie, we don't think you've been completely honest with us. And I'm like, oh, God, what have I done? And, they, and he said, are you sure you've never shot a movie before? Because this looks just um, beautiful. And I was so relieved that he said that. I, was, I really thought I, would, I might have been um, headed out the door at that point. So I've got to thank my cinematographer for making sure that, you know, everything looked gorgeous, that he, uh, that he listened to me and understood what I wanted and came with so many wonderful suggestions of his own. And, you know, that, all that lighting design, we, we studied... Um, we studied Catherine Bigelow's Blue Steel a lot. We uh, we looked even looked at Nightmare on Elm Street four in terms of camera work. I, I really liked the way Rennie Harlan shot that movie, and there was a, there was, yeah there was a lot of influences that we um so we, we sort of drew upon together. 
and he really did a great job of sort of synthesizing all those different um, styles and, and, and elements that I was looking for, camera work from one film and lighting from another. And he understood the, the vibe I was going for, and he just executed it um, pretty much flawlessly, I think. You mentioned the cast, and I, I, I want to take a minute to touch on that, because uh, personally, I think one of the reasons I favor this, and I listen, Scream, I knew you did last summer, two of my favorite films, but I think one of the reasons I hold this film in such high regard is this cast is fantastic, and there's so much personality, there's so much energy in this cast. Um, and, 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 I mean, down to that final reveal, I have to say Brenda is my personal favorite killer reveal of all time with one of the the best monologues <laughs> absolutely no and, and look she's probably the best thing in the entire movie i mean the whole cast is wonderful but rebecca really shone and she had to fight for that role she was auditioning against another fabulous actress and she came and we made her come in at least three or four times i mean i i was kind of leaning towards rebecca the whole time but at the studio and everyone had to be convinced that she was the best choice because in a lot of ways it was the most important piece of casting, especially among the young characters. So I'm delighted with what Rebecca did and she's a wonderful person and she's a dear friend and she couldn't have been more supportive and the whole cast, they were, they were all like that wonderful people who were pretty much a lot of them at the, at the beginning of their careers. Um, and they just, all of them just wanted the film to be great. No one wanted to let anyone down. We, we, we just got so lucky. I mean, we saw a lot of people and I really was so happy with the people I was able to choose. I mean, Michael Rosenbaum came in, and I, 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 yeah, I said he's got the part on the spot. We didn't tell him that on the day, we, but I told the producers, we, we don't need to continue auditions for this character. I, I found the guy. So, yeah, I couldn't be happier with the cast. And getting people like Robert Englund and Brad Dorif and John Neville in there, was, and Daniel Harris as well, it was just so much fun to have some of these characters who, who bring this wonderful baggage from other horror films. Um, it just, it just it really, I think, just sort of celebrated the kind of film that it was and I hope that horror fans would kind of twig in that this was made by, you know, one of them, um, a, a fellow horror fan. Yeah, it truly does have a, an amazing cast. One of the best casts of the of a 90 slasher. Film oh, thank you. No, I, 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 mean, well, you I agree. Th- I think they're fabulous. I mean, you think, yeah, I mean, Daniel Harris, you got, you know, Loretta Devine. Loretta's amazing. Yes. She was the audience favorite. She, when we tested the movie, her character was by far the most loved character in the film. I even had to add a line of uh, ADR from Jared in the very last uh, scene after she's been shot. We had to add a line in saying that the ambulance is on the way and Reese is going to be okay, which is just to make the audience know that she's, <laughs> she survived. <laughs> there are several little moments with the characters, like, for example, Joshua Jackson's character, where he is in the car with uh, Natalie. Uh, and he's trying to start his car and he turns the car on and a clip of, I don't want to wait pops in. Yeah, that was my, it was, I was going to say, was that in the script or is that something because it happened? No, that was just something that I, that I, I used to joke or I used to call Josh Pacey all the time just to sort of tease him a bit. And, um, and I said to him on one of the takes, I said, just react as though the theme song for your shows come on the radio. Uh, It's just, just, just as it was just a note, just to sort of get a reaction out of him. It was just a funny little bit of direction I gave him. And and I kept thinking, God, it would be really funny to just put that in there. So we in the edit, we dropped that music in and we tested the film. And that got the biggest laugh of the whole film. So the studio had to pay an enormous amount of money just for like one second of that song. I think one of the things about this film that makes it work so well, and I think it it's necessary considering the subject matter of being tied into urban legends, is the, the film is very self-aware and there's an element of humor that plays into the dialogue between these characters, their banter, the way this is written. Um, 
some of the better dialogue of the genre from that era. It feels very natural within this collegiate setting. So I really think like that there's an element of humor there that feels very natural. And I feel like that had to be you playing into that because you're creating this. Well, a lot of that credit has to go to Silvio or to the the screenwriter. He's very, very good writer. Well, he was. I'm I'm, I'm devastated that we lost him. But he's just had a really uh, great knack for sassy dialogue. And, um, you know, I just think he's, he was just such a good, I mean, you look at the work he did on Ugly Betty, he's an incredibly talented guy. He was only 24 years old when he wrote that script, when he made that movie. I think he was 22 when he started work on the script. He was 24 years old when we went into production on that film. So he was just a babe. I was only 26, you know, we were all just, all just kids, but yeah, Silvio just had a real knack for that stuff. And then a lot of stuff came out, um, with just working with the cast, you know, allowing them to have a little bit of, um. Uh, improv and stuff and then lines would kind of suggest themselves you know when we were blocking scenes out so a few things were made up on the spot but generally you know that credit really has to go to Silvio oh yeah I mean and well and the fact that you're of that age range I think really translates well too because uh, within the collegiate setting that that plays so naturally into that it doesn't feel faked it doesn't feel forced we've reviewed a few movies within a similar kind of setting within a college where it, you can tell that whoever is writing the dialogue or creating the the chemistry has no fucking idea about about how right. people are talking to each other within that age range but these characters and the actors that are playing them and the dialogue that's written for them it just gels so nicely you get some some i think uh, actor best performances from some of the individuals in this film. I think Tara Reid shines in this movie. Oh, she's extraordinary and she's incredibly brave. I mean, that stuff that she did on the stairwell was was really, really dangerous. And um, she had to put a lot of trust in the stunt team to make sure she was safe. But if something had gone wrong, there was no safety net underneath her. I mean, you can see in those shots, she's really hanging from that stairwell, suspended by a couple of cables. But um, yeah, she was uh, she was incredibly brave, and she just wanted wanted to make that scene as great as it could be, and she just brought every she gave one hundred and ten percent on that sequence, and um, she's wonderful in the movie. I'm, I'm I'm very very lucky. I think you know the fact that we were all kind of the same age did help, and it sort of always burned me a little bit that you know the film was you know when critics referred to it as a ripoff of Scream and stuff like that. And that just seemed like it was kind of like a cynical cash-in, and that was the last thing that anyone had going through their minds on this movie. The film was made with great passion from everybody. Everyone was completely into this thing, and, and we all loved and respected the genre that we were working in. The last thing I wanted to do was put an end to the to the slasher wave that Wes had started. You know, I, I, I took a, I had a dinner with Wes before the film. Um, Silvio and I got to have dinner with him. And we said, look, we take it very, very seriously that we're making a film in the wake of Scream because the last thing we want to do is shut down this um, this slasher wave before it's even had a chance to get going. So, yeah, it was there was a, the last thing it was was a cynical cash-in on Scream. This film was um, this film meant a lot to all of us. Then, the, you know, like crew as well. I mean, we all took this very, very seriously. We wanted to make a great film, and I wanted to deliver for Phoenix Pictures, who put their trust in me. It was a, it was a huge. You know, I mean, I don't, it doesn't happen very often. A filmmaker gets to make his first movie for a studio like that. Um, so yeah, I, we, we took it very seriously, and um, we were all very, very proud of the work everyone did in that film. I think a lot of fans of of the slasher genre, especially fans of Scream, let's just say fans of Scream, often uh, kind of have commentary to say on the films that came after it, uh, putting Scream on a pedestal. And it does deserve to be put on a pedestal for reinvigorating 
the genre. However, like, you can't sit there and say that the, the formula and the format for a good slasher wasn't set within the groundwork of the films that came before Scream. Oh, of course, of course. And that's what Scream's all about, is commenting on that formula. So I think a lot of kids who grew up, um, you know, the, the younger kids in their teens, they probably weren't aware of a lot of these slashes that had come before Scream. And you've got to remember in the 90s, horror had been through a pretty fallow period at the beginning of that decade. You know, we didn't have a lot of stuff. We had... West did you know, New Nightmare, which was wonderful, but it was mostly like um, Candyman and maybe Dr. Giggles, and there was a few odd horror films here and there, but it was far from like a golden uh, era in horror. So Scream really does deserve the credit for bringing it back. Everyone's aware of the importance that it had. But um, yeah, I, I always felt a little bit like some of the films that came in the wake of it were a little bit harshly uh, judged, <laughs> and it was yeah. it was inevitable. It was it was a good problem to have ultimately. I mean, I can't complain, but um, we really did try to make the best film we possibly could. Yeah, I think you know it was it was inevitable. Like you said, it was inevitable that Scream re- reinvigorated the the slasher genre, and critics, of course, were going to then be critical of any film that came after it that followed the same sort of formula. Uh, it kind of happened in the 80s with all of those 80s slasher, yeah. uh, the 80s slasher booms. By the end of the 80s, people were over it. Critics were really... I think also critics tend to not like the genre in general. And a lot of them have been very generous with Scream. And I just I don't think that generosity was going to be extended to any of the films that came in its wake necessarily. <laughs> well, it's, it seems like Urban Legend, though. I, I would say I would say as the years have gone on, I think looking back on it, I think Urban Legend now, people are starting to realize what a great film it is because it does seem to be mentioned quite a bit now as one of the you know better slasher films to come out in in the last 30 years i see it mentioned all the time so i think it's one of those things where when it first came out yes critics are going to be very dismissive oh god another slasher flick here we go but i mean looking at it from a piece of from a filmmaking standpoint it is definitely a a standout film and i it's i think it is getting that recognition now um so i guess you know, better late than never, but I think it does have a lot of respect. Yeah, I mean, sometimes it takes takes a while before um, the films can be sort of reevaluated. It's always interesting to me. It's a similar thing with Valentine. I mean, if you look at the tomato meter scores on those two films, they're abysmal. But the film, um, both those films, tend to have developed a bit of a following now, which is so lovely. But it's just very strange because you know those films. Not a f- single frame of those films has changed over the years. It's just people's reaction to those movies is very different. Um, there was a, I don't think it was a strange pushback on Valentine. I'm not sure it's because the film was calling out toxic masculinity the way that it was. And maybe a lot of straight horror fans who read Fangoria, you know, just weren't, weren't into that kind of message being, I, I don't know what it was, but that film really got uh, excoriated by, by critics and fans. I mean, the readers of Fangoria magazine voted Valentine the worst horror film of 2001. Oh my God. And as a kid who grew up on, a kid who grew up reading Fangoria magazine, that was just agony. That took me a long time to get over that pain. I couldn't believe it when I read that. And, um, you know, I was so excited when Fangoria came to the set of Urban Legend, you know, but became really great friends with the, with the, with Michael Rowe, the journalist who covered the movies, both, both those movies. And, um, yeah, he was just, we were both so shocked that the reaction that the, um, Valentine got, but anyway, it's nice late years later that people seem to have, um, you know, embraced the film a lot more and it's at least got a fan base of people who enjoy it and, that's just nice. It's good, good for me um, psychologically. <laughs> well, and not and not to stray into not to stray into Valentine too much because obviously Urban Legend the focus. But mm. you know when we covered when we covered Valentine 
a few weeks ago. I think one thing to say about that movie, if if anything's withstood the test of time, I think Valentine time has been good to it. If Valentine, if, if you would have taken that script and probably not really fucking changed it at all, and just released that film in 2017, it would have been called Progressive, and it would have been called Groundbreaking. Or it would have been called Woke. <laughs> Who knows? Yeah, we call it, it would have been called Woke. It would have, it would have, been, it would have been considered part of a movement. Um, I think it was just ahead of its time. And kudos to you for, for taking on that material of a script that really does present I would say a, a, a group of women who are just strong, independent women. You don't see films like that that present women in a way that they are no, you, not, inter- not interested in putting up with men's bullshit. No, it, wasn't, you know? it definitely wasn't common at the time. And, that, and that's definitely what Dylan and I wanted to explore. It was a movie about dating ultimately and revenge. And it, uh, it just we, we, had to, we had to explore those themes that way. And uh, yeah, the, the, admittedly, the men in Valentine are um, they're they're caricatures. They're all they're all kind of representations of different uh, toxic traits that men can have, and it's done sometimes in a very broad way. But um, hey, look, it's, we just wanted to make a fun slasher film with a little bit of a message that we snuck in there, and and a film that was very sympathetic to girls who had done something bad, and uh, some of them had you know grown up to regret it, and. Um, but, but the man hadn't been able to you know, let it let it go. It's just David's final scene where he's talking about Dorothy. He's basically confessing his crimes in that scene. So, yeah, I always liked Valentine. I always liked the the, the way that we ended Valentine. Um, I'm, t- I'm quite proud both both the endings of those two movies. I wrote both those endings, and um, uh, it was lovely to get Brenda back in the way that we did at the end of Urban Legend. That was we, we explored all sorts of different endings, and that that was by far the one that we just we all we all agreed was the best way to end the film. So, um, regarding your style and the in the way that you film a lot of your kills, I think I mean you have a beautiful style in general, but you really make your kills. Uh, each one is treated to be a standout sequence. I don't feel like your movies have a lot of disposable throwaway kill sequences, which I think for me as a horror fan, I mean, thank you for that. <laughs> it makes it quite an experience. Oh, thank you. It was my play. They were great fun to do. No, we, we definitely wanted to make all of them very uh, special and and uh, and we, we threw a lot of resources and time at each of those sequences to make sure they were, um, they were great because ultimately it's a horror film. That's what people are coming along to see is the scares and the thrills and the kills. And we wanted to make sure that we uh, we delivered it on them as best as we could. I'm curious, are there any, within Urban Legend, are there any kill sequences that were maybe trimmed down for the sake of ratings or that? Are, uh, Not in Urban Legend, okay. no. No, that, that was never intended to be a particularly gory film. The studio were quite happy with my approach that I would imply things more than, than show them. I mean, there's a few little bloody aftermaths and things like that, but we don't we don't really show, you know, knives or axe penetrating skin during that movie or anything like that. It's just, really, we were, we were trying to make a film for teens and for and, and and also young girls too. We wanted them to be part of the audience, and we didn't want to put them off. This was well before the era of the Saw movies and things where violence on the screen got really amped up. Uh, I, I just thought it was more, it was more fun to make it a little bit more implied and to do it. More in the style maybe of Halloween than necessarily the films that came after Halloween. Yeah, and it does come off as very much a stylistic choice, I will say that. Because you're right, a lot of them do feel implied. But then every once in a while, like for example, the shot of the Dean where the car goes over him. And you see the full shot of him laying there with the spikes going over him. Or, you know, going to Valentine, the moment with Ruthie where she gets the... 
the full like yeah. impale through the throat with the glass. It's clear like when you want to do it, when you want to show the whole shebang, you do it with a lot of gusto. But a lot of times you choose um, uh, the style and and just overall quality execution uh, to keep us kind of hanging on wanting more. And I, I love that. I love that your approach is not all about just throwing the blood at the wall and making it as, as gory and violent as possible. It's all about style. Yeah, we didn't want that, it to be that kind of film. We um, we, we just thought it'd be much more fun to do it, you know, a, a little bit more suggestively. Speaking of the ending of Urban Legend, now there were you ever? I know there was a sequel. You know, there's Urban Legend Two Final Cut. Were you ever? Was that something you were ever considering when the film was released that you wanted to do the sequel or were you approached to do the sequel or were you interested in doing the sequel? Uh, I was approached to do the sequel. They already decided to go that way. Once the, it was, When we did the first film at Phoenix, we were pretty much left alone. They were more, uh, they were better known for doing more prestige kind of movies. Uh, they'd done some really fabulous films there. And I think Urban Legend was, they, they, they needed something to bring in a bit of money and they kind of they loved the script and they just trusted us to go off and do it. But once the film was a big hit uh, on the sequel, everyone at Phoenix got involved. There was a, a lot more of a committee involved in that film, and um, I was actually attached to do another picture with Phoenix, which we ultimately didn't make. But um, we were developing it for that whole year, so I was kind of busy on another project. But I did get asked at one point to do it. But the sequel that I always wanted to make from that film was kind of set up at the end of the first film. My idea was to do a sequel where you bring back the entire cast again. And they're playing different characters. You're, you're telling a different version of the story. And that was kind of how we set it up with Brenda at the end. Let me tell you how the story really goes. And that was always Silvio and I. That's how, that's how we imagined the sequel could be done, which would be a different way to go. And it would be, uh, you know, like, like Scream have legacy characters that come back uh, film after film. But we just thought it'd be a really fun approach to bring back everyone and just mix up all the roles and have them playing completely different people. Um, but ultimately it didn't go in that direction. I do too. That would have been cool to see. Yeah. Ooh, I love that. <laughs> yeah. Was there a treatment for that ever? Uh, no, no, there wasn't. Who would you have cast um, if you would have moved the parts around? Who would you Who would you have placed in the final girl role in your mind, in your heart? <laughs> do you have an idea? Uh, it It may have been. It may have actually been uh, Brenda, potentially. Oh it my god! Have, I'm not sure. It may. We, we may have gone that way. Um, it wouldn't have been Alicia again. Uh, maybe Tara. Maybe maybe Brenda. We, we, I'm really not sure. We we never really got a chance to fully you know explore that idea. And like I said, we had used up a lot of the great urban legends uh, in that first film. Um, the ones that they got, you know, they they even uh, they had to go and do a reshoot in the sequel because uh, they needed they needed to amp it up after a test screening. It was just there was this desire to make the film a bit more intense. So they went out and shot the kidney heist sequence that we kind of. Uh, we're building up to as the final urban legend in the movie, but you know, Brenda never got to go through with it. She, her plans got thwarted by Reese before she could carry that one out. So they ended up shooting that for the sequel. But yeah, most of the urban legends they used in part two were the ones Sylvia and I had almost considered using, but um, ultimately didn't go that direction. Yeah, I mean, the sequel, I these are two films I've owned on VHS since I was about 13. So uh, with the sequel, you know, I even, I enjoy the sequel, but one thing I always yearned for was just more of a connection to the original material. It did feel very, very separated from it. And at least you got that little bit of that cameo at the end of, of the, of 
the second movie with her. Yeah, they got Rebecca. They snuck Rebecca in there at the end. Look, John's approach on that one, and, and I know it's an approach that Mike Medivoy really supported, was to make it a lot more Hitchcockian. And there are a lot of very clever film references in that movie, but you need to kind of be a film buff to to pick them all up, to know that they're doing vertigo and they're doing different things at different times. There was John's a great uh, filmmaker and an incredible editor and composer. And uh, I, I just think maybe that approach wasn't quite what the fans of the first movie were looking for in the sequel. Like it did very well when it came out. I think it opened at number one um, when it came out. Uh, it, did, it did quite well. But um, it's just maybe alienated uh, the fan base a little bit because, you know, it was just a, it was, you needed to be a film nerd to really appreciate all the stuff going on in that. Scene. Oh, absolutely. Um, and, and luckily you did have. Loretta Devine returning, and you also did have Jessica Cofield, who, full circle, you got to work with, and Valentine, oh, who is yeah. one of my favorite genre actresses, to be honest. I think she's great. Well, she she's like Michael Rosenbaum. That's one of the few times where I've seen someone in an audition and offered her the part on the spot, like I literally said to Jessica before she left the building, um, you're Lily. I've got to obviously get it approved by Warner Brothers, but um, as far as I'm concerned, this, this role is cast. And her audition was so spectacular that they agreed. And um, she's one of the best things in in uh, Valentine. And she's just an absolutely lovely human being. I adore Jessica. Yeah, I'm so excited that she's coming back for the next Legally Blonde because she hasn't she hasn't been doing a ton of, of work uh, for whatever reasons. But to have her come back, I just I miss her presence. Um, I now there yeah, is. Yeah, I want to work, work with her again on some upcoming things that I'm working on. I'm actually working on some very, very exciting stuff at the moment. That's stuff what I've been hoping for. Those will be very, um, <laughs> they're very, very happy to see. Not that I can talk about them, but um, I am working on some really fun stuff um, that will be. Uh, that might have been a long time coming. So that's all. A long time coming from you, and I, I just I want to see another film from you in theaters like I, I i the experience of watching these movies defined my teenage years i would love to see another offering from you uh so please make that make that happen <laughs> well well you, hopefully you won't have to wait too long um rog excellent so, yeah. well yes i do want to ask you there is there is rumor that there is another urban legend on its way out and that both rebecca gayhart and loretta divine are attached to it um are you connected are you Working on this at all? Are you familiar with what's going on? Do you know anything about this? Uh, what I know is that Colin Minahan um, was going to uh, write and direct a film based around internet urban legends. And that was going to be shot in South Africa. Uh, but this was all pre-pandemic. And I, I'm not sure of the status of that movie right now. I wouldn't want to speculate on what's happening with that film. But that... That, that's what I do. And Colin, Colin's a brilliant director, and we had a lovely chat on Twitter, uh, DMing each other back and forth, and he was very respectful of the first film. And So if, um, if Colin's going to uh, make that movie, I'm really excited to see it, and I hope it's a big success for Mike Medavoy because he, he helped start my career. Well, and I'll say regarding that, like, I mean, you're, you are right. At the, when, when the original Urban Legend came out, you guys covered all of the standards. you know. But when you think about how social media has evolved... Uh, and 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 just what all has come out of social media existing in general, the amount of material we soak up, uh, what we see on the news every day, urban legends, in my opinion, are created on a daily basis anymore. You know, and we live in a post-truth era. People choose their own truth. People decide they're going to believe this, especially if you're a Republican. Um, they they uh, yeah, well, they call them alternate facts. 
Yeah. Well, I mean, absolutely. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, and you're, I'm not saying I would ever necessarily want to see Urban Legend remade, but I would love to see an updated uh, take on the concept because I just think there's so much to explore with that. I I would be very interested in seeing that. Um, Yeah. Well, God, this, yeah, there's things I want to say and uh, I can't quite say. I get it. <laughs> I know for like the last, I don't know. I, I think the first time I heard was like maybe five, five or so years ago. I, I know that they were, they started to talk about a remake of urban legend. It was around the same time they started talking about, and I know what you did last summer remake. Um, so it's been, you know, it's been talked about here for, for the last couple of years. I know. Well, all I'll say is that it would, it would make an awful lot of sense at this point in time, given how successful Halloween ends, uh, sorry, Halloween kills and uh, scream have been, they're both made north of, hundred million dollars. Uh, it seems like the, the the safe bet at the box office right now are superhero films and slasher films. Oh yeah, we're seeing a resurgence. Um, Tending to do well. Yeah. So so that fact um, is not lost on me. Let's just put it that way. Yay! Oh, you're you're speaking my language, Jamie. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, I do want to know now. Just you know, for you, you know, having had your the the history and your career having many horror movies under your belt at this point, urban legend being probably one of the standouts, one of the pinnacle successes for you. I'm sure you have to have a lot of proud moments within that film. Um, What would you say one or two moments that when you watch this movie back today, really stand out to you or, or remain your proudest moments as a director in creating that film? Oh, well, the, really, the opening sequence is like a little movie within a movie. I'm I'm very very proud of that because that's always worked really well with audiences. Over the years, lots of people have told me how they got chills when Brad utters that that finally gets those words out. That's that sequence came together really really nicely, and I was able to as I, I was able to film it as I imagined it in my head, the way the camera sort of swoops overhead, and we and we really tried to make that little gas station into sort of a little. You know, as an epic location as we possibly could. Um, there's that whole sequence in the radio station with Tara that I think worked out beautifully. But the whole ending of the movie, you know, once um, once uh, they're in the car with Jared and they find Wex's body in the boot and they're running through the wheel, all that stuff turned out really, really nicely. And um, I'm just, I'm really proud of the film. But it's, it's, it's also that final scene with Rebecca I think I'm really proud of because she had to really walk the fine line between being uh, not too over the top, but just camping enough. And I think, you know, we just landed the plane in the, in the just in the right zone with that performance. And um, I'm really proud of that, how that all turned out. Now, look, I look back at that movie and um, I'm, it's, it's, sometimes I'm, I'm, it blows my mind that we actually got that done because um, we had 13 weeks of post-production on that film. So we between turning the cameras off and going home from the shoot and the film opening in theatres was 13 weeks. So that's 13 weeks to cut the whole film to score the whole film, to do all the sound design, the mix, the color grade. That, that's an insanely fast schedule that most films don't stick to. But we needed to come out that weekend for the studio, and I agreed to go on an accelerated sprint to get it done. And we just worked like demons to get that film finished. So I, I look back at it, I don't think the film suffered for that at all, that we had an accelerated post period. And I'm really proud of that fact too, that you know, for my first film, it, it came together the way that it did. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. If you look, if you look at the films that have stood, you know, withstood the test of time from within the genre, Troy is right. You know, kind of coming full circle with this, 
I would say there's a kind of a holy trilogy of slashers from that era. You got Scream, I Know What You Did Last Summer, and Urban Legend. And for for this to be your first studio endeavor, major studio project, and for it to be recognized as such, um, I think is a testament to your skill set and, and well, what you're you. able to do. Yeah. Well, I was really proud, too, that in that whole uh, sort of second slasher wave, I got to make two entries in that in that whole uh, cycle. There's not many directors who made more than one of them. Wes Craven and I are probably the only ones who made more than one installment in that whole era. And if I'd grown up in the 80s knowing that one day that I was going to be able to contribute to the second big slasher wave of movies and contribute a couple of um, ones that people still enjoy 20 years later or so, I, I'd be, I would have been stoked to know that was going to happen. So I'm very, very lucky that those opportunities presented themselves and that I got to work with such incredible people who helped me bring those films to life. And I'm, I'm always going to be grateful to those people. Yeah, absolutely. It takes a skilled team to create something. Oh yeah, there's nothing. Caliber. There's nothing more. You know, there's, the, the most collaborative thing you can do is make a movie. You know, you don't do any part of the movie on your own. It's all all done as part of a massive team, and there's uh, you know, so many decisions that have to get made for these things to come to life. There's so many ways you can trip up and make mistakes, and you know that's why I never criticize any other director on for any genre on Twitter or publicly. I'd never criticize another filmmaker because I know just how hard it is to make any movie, and um, you know I just I just think it's almost a minor miracle that that every film gets made. There's so much work involved, and you don't really understand how much work is involved until you've gone on set and actually made one. And you know those experiences have just made me very very understanding for all other filmmakers. I, I, I always. Um, <laughs> tread very very lightly when it comes to that sort of stuff oh absolutely uh, and and as you must these days because anything you say on social media will come back to haunt you uh, but in, the, oh, in yeah. terms of raising up another director <laughs> or acknowledging um uh something that that has maybe moved you within the last few years something that stood out to you uh any specific genre films that you've seen within recent years that have really uh, impacted you or stood out to you? Yeah, there's, there's, there's been a bunch of them. I, I, I really loved It Follows. That was a film that I that I came back to many times. <laughs> and just the basic premise <laughs> of that film is really creepy and messed up. And I found myself thinking about that quite a lot. Like, what would you do if there was something coming at you constantly and you didn't know where it was going to come from? I mean, you could bounce around town from one side to the other for a while, but eventually it's going to catch up with you and it was just a crazy idea, and it was really well executed, and I, it just stayed with me, that one. Um, I've, I've, I loved uh, Antlers. I watched that just recently, and that was terrific. Uh, I thought that was a really great monster movie. And, um, oh, there's, there's, look, there's a bunch of films that I've enjoyed over the years. I really liked the new Scream movie. I thought that was really good fun, and I thought it really honoured the kind of style of uh, Wes and Kevin's um, uh, series beautifully. And I loved that previous film as well, Ready or Not. It was great fun. I, I had a ball watching that movie, so... No, I, I, I watch a lot of stuff still. I, I try and stay very uh, on top of everything that people are doing. Lee Wanell's another director that I think is just absolutely wonderful. I love The Invisible Man and I loved uh, Upgrade. He's, he's a really talented guy from my hometown. Uh, I was very proud that Lee said on Twitter that uh, he and James um, were inspired by the trailer that I made for I Know What You Did Last Time, and that's how they made the uh, thing for Saw, and that's what helped get Saw up off the ground. Because Lee, years ago, uh, interviewed me. He, was, he, he used to host a show on... Saturday morning TV called Recovery, and they had me on as a guest when I did Urban Legend. And I remember Lee chasing me out to the car park, wanting to know all about the trailer that I'd made. So um, I've been so proud of those two guys, two Aussies who've done so well in the genre, and it just makes me really happy to think I might have played a tiny role in inspiring those guys to you know follow their dream of making films. That's always awesome. Oh, absolutely. 
Yeah, and you mentioned Upgrade. I have to say that uh, Logan Marshall Green stars in that, and he was also in The, the Invitation. Uh, he's somebody who has done quite a few things in the genre. I really love him as an yes. actor. He's one of my favorites. I love, love Upgrade. I think it's a fantastic film. Uh, needs more attention. Well, Up- Upgrade does things that um, uh, not many films are able to do. Upgrade uh, shot action in a completely unique, original um, way. And I'd, n- I'd never seen an action sequence quite like the ones that they shot in that film. And that's that's really something to be able to do that. You know, it's, uh, it's there's not many films that can claim that. So, um, yeah, he's a, he's a wonderful filmmaker, Lee, and I'm, I'm, I can't wait to see what he does next. And we, yeah, we, it, it follows as one of my favorite. We, in fact, we just covered that film. So yeah, yeah it's a brilliant we, film. It's got a great score and it really is shot like a cop in the movie from the opening frames. You know exactly where that director's coming from. And, um, yeah, it's, uh, the special, special effects were done by my really good friend, Bob Kurtzman too. So I'm always glad to see Bob, um, out there doing really great stuff. You mentioned enjoying the latest Scream movie, and one of the things that that Troy mentioned within our rev- we literally just re- reviewed it a couple days ago. It follows was that the concept of the elevated horror. Uh, honestly, it follows we think kind of kicked off that that resurgence of the genre, but also taking it to a, a new elevated level. Yeah, well, just it was an original idea. It was yeah, something yeah. That, that no one had thought of before, and it's it's always wonderful when you see a film like that that works so well. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I mean, I, I love The Descent as well. That's a really wonderful uh, film that explores true claustrophobia. Like I remember getting a special kind of uh, uh, creeped out on that movie that other films don't um, deliver. I just remember there were moments in that film that really started, I was really starting to get scared. So I love it when a film can do that because it breaks through all the technique and other stuff that I'm normally looking at. And it just gets me on a, on a visceral level. And that film was just wonderful. And I just, um, I'm always grateful when a filmmaker can do that. Yeah. The descent is absolutely one of my, my favorite, uh, offerings within the genre. I would say in, in the last several decades, I yeah. mean, it, it, it plays on both, uh, fantastical fears and also very plausible, yes. very real fears as well. That's exactly what it is. Yeah. Yeah. You nailed it. Some great choices. Yeah. There, yeah. I mean, there's, I think horror has definitely, um, done pretty, I mean, maybe not done pretty well box office wise with the exception of like Halloween kills and, uh, the new scream film, but I'm saying in, in this past decade, it seems like we've really gotten some great horror films. So it is like, you know, hereditary midsummer. If it follows. Yeah. I mean, I love those films. I've, I love hereditary. I love. Yeah. Film. I mean, it follows the witch. So it is cool to see horror, um, you know, getting that sort of smart again is what I, I, I mentioned that in, in the uh, It Follows review is like horror is it's cool for horror to be smart again. But now I, me as a slasher fan, I grew up in the 80s with slasher films. I love slasher films. So I'm also really antsy to see that kind of next wave of of new slasher films come that hopefully, like you mentioned, Halloween Kills and and the new Scream film to being so successful starts to kick off because I'm all for, I'm all for it. I'm all for seeing a slasher. Yeah, film me in the too. Theater. I mean, you don't get you don't coming. You don't you don't get them very often anymore unless it is a sequel or a remake. I want to see some well, original. It's, it's, it, they come in waves. It's always it's always kind of been that way. It's um you know unfortunately most of the stuff we're getting now are reboots and 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 but that's not necessarily a terrible thing. There's no sure thing in Hollywood. Everyone wants to make money, and sometimes, you know, uh, like the Texas Chainsaw Massacre reboot kind of kicked off that whole wave. Sometimes it's just you know, it's it's good for any horror film to get made, and if it's because it's a well-known franchise or an established name or something that the studio can 
get sort of a jump on the marketing because there's already an awareness of that title, then that's, you know, not necessarily a bad thing. But I love it when I see a good original film come out. Like Antlers really blew me away. And uh, I just I just want more of that sort of stuff. Just, um, you know, it's, it's fine to have some remakes and reboots and remixes and recalls and stuff. But um, let, let's let's sprinkle a few original ones in there as well. Yeah, well, it sounds like based off the, the vague little hints of commentary you've thrown in here that you might be part of whatever's to come. You know, this this uh, I, I definitely have a project that is that is. It's, it's been on and off for the, like the last year. It's been kind of torturous, like thinking we're going to go at the beginning of this year and then it's getting pushed off. It, it's now starting to look like it's going to happen. Um, so, yeah, keep. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll be sure to let you know. As soon as I'm able to announce it, um, just uh, check my Twitter. It'll, it'll, I'll, I'll be singing it to the heavens as soon as I can say Oh, we can't wait. We can't awesome. wait. And honestly, on a, on a final note, just because Troy and I were both indie filmmakers, we, we, we do this – you know, oh, grassroots shoestring filmmaking. But for you as somebody who, you know, you started, you know, in your twenties, you got that you, you went from you know, creating your own art to having a studio behind you, backing you. Um, and I'm sure this is something you've been asked before, but we're just going to ask it because our fan base is a lot of other people who are doing the same thing, creating their own art with whatever means they have and, and trying to get it out yes, there. Yes, that's what people should so be doing. So what, I mean, not just yeah. advice, but just what, what words of wisdom would you have for people who are working within the film industry, within the genre? What would you say to people who are trying to create their own art right now? Oh, look, I, I think it, it's never been as easy to get your hands on a camera and the um, the tools that you need to make a film. I mean, back when I was a teenager, I wanted to make films with my friends in the school holidays. I had to borrow a big video camera from my high school drama department. We used to have to edit them with two VCRs stuck to each other, and we'd be trying to edit the film that way. I know that's how Robert Rodriguez did a lot of his early films. And then striping the audio off the tape and then uh, sticking it on a cassette tape and then trying to remix sound and music uh, with using the audio dub feature on a VHS deck. I mean, that was so primitive, but that's, that's, that's the only way we could make films back then. Now it's like you can get your hands on digital editing systems and cameras. You can shoot a film with your phone, for God's sake. So it's never been as easy to go out there and tell stories. And I think it's the same thing. You just, you've got to have something to say. And, you know, if you really do have a passion for, you know, the, the genre and for filmmaking, don't have a backup plan. <laughs> Make it yourself. If I had a, had a backup plan, a plan B, I probably would have ended up doing that. I just set my mind on, like, I've got to make films. Nothing else will do. It doesn't matter what it takes. doesn't matter how long it takes or how hard I have to work. I just want to get, um, I want to get behind the, the camera and make films. So I just had my heart set on that. And I did everything I could with the means that I had at the time to try and get people's attention. And, um, you know, it's, it's sometimes helpful to go to a film school because you meet other like-minded people. You have access to equipment and, and gear that that's, you know, that, that wasn't that easy to come by back in the in the 90s at least but now like i said you you, you can shoot a film with your phone you can you can edit the film on your laptop uh you can do a great sound design on your laptop you've got digital i mean digital audio was something that was way out of reach back when um even when i was at film school um we, we were doing it all the old-fashioned way with mag film and stuff so the tools to make uh movies have never been as easy to get your hands on and i just encourage people if you've got a story to say go out there and make it and um and have fun that's what it should be filmmaking should be fun absolutely it should come from a place of passion absolutely and just just i mean we'll wrap you know to wrap this up just so you know and this is an honest to god true story and troy will attest so you know the kind of impact you've had on us as fans of the genre i met troy online fans of horror 
over Instagram years ago. Oh, how fantastic. I was, I, um, he was making a film. He was making a movie called Teacher Shortage. And I auditioned and he offered me a role. It was the role of what ends up being the killer in this movie. Troy's in Houston. I'm in Ohio. So we're on the other, you know, completely different sides of the, the country. But I said, yes, I will come out. I'll do this. Absolutely. But the only way I'll do this is if you can promise me, Troy, <laughs> that I have a Rebecca Gay Hart finale <laughs> because I, I will not do it unless it is up to par with Urban Legend. And he said, oh, that's the only way I'll have it. <laughs> oh, I love that. That's awesome. Yeah, I had I had it all written out. I had the I had his mo- killer reveal monologue all, and it was modeled off Rebecca. G- I mean, it really was. Oh, I wish Sylvia was here to hear that story. That's just gorgeous. Oh my god, best monologue, the best one liners, word for word. I mean, like every single thing she says in that final moment is golden, and that's you know for me, it's stuck with me as one of the standout moments within the genre in general. And and all I want. Oh, you know, I love that. I love that. The, uh, I love that the film had uh, that kind of meaning for you and that, that, that makes me so happy to think uh, every time I hear a story from someone who's, I've gotten some letters before from people who've told me these wonderful stories about, you know, they were in deep depression and the film helped them at a particular point in their life when they needed it. And uh, that, that, that is the greatest gift any filmmaker can have to, to, to know that your film have, has meaning for other people in all sorts of different ways. And, um, yeah, that that that's a lovely story, and I'm 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 really glad you shared that with me. And we, man, we are glad that you took the time to sit with us and chat for the last hour. We're very lucky to have you, two fans, diehard fans. Oh, it's my pleasure, and and we'll we'll def, we'll definitely do it again. I mean, you know, it's, it was lovely chatting with you guys. Yeah, let us know when you've got this new project dropping. We're going to be first in line to see it. We can promise you that. We love your work. Can't wait for more. Oh, thanks, guys. It's really lovely. Thank, Thank you, you so Thank so you. much. Absolutely. Oh, it was my pleasure. And enjoy that beautiful, I'm sure your weather is 10 times better than <laughs> anything I'm having here in Ohio. Well, it's, it's, so. it's, it's lovely down here. We're about to go down to my holiday house uh, down by the beach this afternoon with, with a friend of mine who's this beautiful painter. And we just bought a couple of his works from my wife's office. And we're going down to celebrate and have a lovely time down by the beach. So it'll be, it'll be gorgeous. And I'm really looking forward to it. We're very lucky. The weather hasn't quite turned nasty here yet. Well, we got ice and snow. But on that note, we really appreciate your time and we can't wait to support you with whatever comes uh, next. Roger Troy, thank you so much. You guys have been so lovely. It was a real pleasure talking to you both and um, we will definitely do it again soon. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Jamie. And I need you now tonight. And I need you more than ever. More than ever. If you only more than ever hold me tight. It's a total eclipse of the heart. My God. That was almost as beautiful, as lovely as our interview we just had with the, the, the lamb of a gentleman that is Jamie Blanks. What a sweetheart. I Yeah, I was nervous as heck going into that interview, but he... uh. Definitely, definitely put us at ease with his Australian accent. I was just going to say that that accent, how dreamy. But, I mean, come on, the Roger. Fitness. You know, I, I, I'm I, just still like in awe that we actually have the director of one of my favorite slasher films, and I know certainly one of your favorite slasher films, that agreed to come on our little podcast. Well, and I do really feel this is full circle because that story that we just told Troy that um, regarding the casting for teacher shortage, the first time you and I ever worked together, one of the very first things I said, I said, I don't really necessarily want to make a career out of playing killers, but if I'm going to do it, 
you better make sure it's Rebecca Gayhart quality. <laughs> I, and I said that, did I not? You did. You did. You did. Yeah. And he yeah. definitely got a kick out of knowing that he or his, you know, Rebecca Gayhart inspired Roger Connors' performance in Teacher Shortage. I'm sure he will uh, be rushing to check that out. Oh, <laughs> I'm just at his Australian beach house. Oh God! If only I had her hair to match in her performance. I really, I should have said Troy. The only way I'll do teacher shortage is if I get to have the monologue and if I get to wear the fucking wig because that hair is half that performance. But my God, I love Rebecca Gayhart in this movie. I love a lot of things about this movie, and I'll make it known right now. I'm at many slashers that I hold near and dear to my heart, but. Urban Legend Man, you know what? It's one of the first ones I remember uh, really falling in love with. And it, that love, that passion I have for it has carried with me. I think it's because of the the approach to this material. The fact that it chooses to tackle urban legends, which tran- transcend beyond horror, beyond cinema. It's something everybody knows. Everyone knows at least one good urban legend. We're all familiar with these stories, these little ta- fables that are being told uh, over the course of this film, we all know at least one of them. So it feels very relevant. And it feels like um, we can all um, connect with an aspect of this film. I grew up loving urban legends, not the film. Well, the film, obviously, but I'm talking about before the film came out, you know, as a little kid and whatnot, I was so fascinated by these urban legend stories. And I remember like just telling telling the stories with neighborhood kids, like as campfire tales. You know, the one about the the babysitter, up, you know, calling or the babysitter being stalked by the phone calls, the killer in the backseat of the car. All of these I just remember telling as a kid. And actually, as an English teacher, I did use urban legends as a way to, um, you know, introduce certain uh, concepts and and skills when I was teaching language arts. And the kids would get a real big kick out of that. When we were, you know, when we were just dis- when we were discussing, you know, various things, it, I would throw in an urban legend story and be like, and use that as a tool to to teach. So I felt like Professor Wixler a couple of times. Oh, you are. And you look like him too, aged, but handsome, <laughs> refined, graying, but it works for you. But um, there are so many things about this movie that 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 works for me. And I think one of the, the biggest standouts to me is, is how well paced this story is. It almost plays like a kind of fable or an urban legend in itself because it has such a natural flow to it. And um, it hits so on, on so many of these great well-known tales. Um, it just is a, a, a really well-handled story, a really well-handled script, and it's edited so tight so right. It's just the pacing really hits home for me. Yeah, it's a brisk pace. It never has any boring. It never has po- pointless scenes. You know what I mean? It, there's no mm-hmm. scenes that drag. There's no scenes that seem um, seem unnecessary. The yeah. pacing, the editing, the pacing is is crisp, f- moves right along. You know what else I like? I love me a great opening scene. Oh my goodness. And let me tell you, one of the best opening kills not just of that era but i'd say within the slasher genre in general this film hits it home yeah and it's 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 been done before just not this effectively there was that i don't know if you ever saw it uh it's from the early 80s i think it's called it's an anthology film it's called nightmares have Mm -hmm. you seen that 
Um, I, I've, I've not actually seen it, but I have seen the comparison images yeah, of this exact same opening. I know what you're talking about. It's a, it's a, it's an anthology film. It has Emilio Estevez as one of the, uh, one of the segments where he plays like this video game obsessed, you know, teenager that gets obsessed with the arcade game. However, one of their stories is this exact story. It's a girl, a woman that goes out for, um, in the middle of the night, I think to get cigarettes even though her husband scolds her about smoking, she sneaks out to go to the gas station to get cigarettes. And while she's in there, the killer with the, you know, axe gets in the backseat of her car. I mean, it's, but I mean, it's not done anywhere nearly as effectively as this whole opening. I mean, from the opening frame of this, this film with the sweeping shot of the road, the rain falling on the, on the cement. It's so elegant. It is elegant. And you get, you, you, you open with the character of Michelle Mancini. That last name driving. Yeah. Driving down the windy road of, a, I'm assuming Maine because this film takes place in Maine. Um, she is listening to under the covers with Sasha. Oh yes. <laughs> this, in, this, this phone interview is really stand out. If you listen to this conversation, all of Sasha's little interview she has are actually quite fucking entertaining. Oh my God. They're hilarious. And I do love the fact that he did mention, Jamie did mention the fact that even these stories, of the, the callers that are calling in, even these the stories that they're telling are urban legends themselves, because they are. I, I do remember hearing the story about a uh, a girl that steals her roommate's birth control pills and uh, replaces them with baby aspirin, and that is the first call that Sasha gets this night is a girl who's all upset because well she's not even upset she's kind of a twat about it. She stole her birth her her roommate's birthday or birth control pills and replaced them with baby aspirin. And her roommate ends up ends up getting pregnant, and all she's worried about is how am I going to find another roommate so quick? I love it, and I love you know. I got to say, without even seeing her on camera yet, Tara Reid already establishes a presence with these um, little Sasha segments. I got to say, this is probably Tara Reid's best performance, but she's fucking great in this, and she's so good at playing this radio host personality this was a really good character for her but yeah this whole opening uh is so strong and it's only elevated by a beautiful score which is is really like grand it doesn't feel like anything else we've heard uh in some of our recent reviews we've been talking about a lot of synth and a lot of kind of like electronic sounds this is not that at all the score for this movie is is very orchestral very grand very elegant, and it just amplifies the beautiful cinematography in the movie. This whole movie, he said, had had kind of a gothic approach, and I see it. I completely see it. Oh, I do too. I mean, I mean, yes, absolutely. I mean, the score, everything. Yeah, this opening scene is just so damn good. The, the minute she switches the radio show to the tape of Total Eclipse of the Heart and, and starts to sing or sing along to it, horribly. <laughs> Horribly. I was going to say, bless us. I think we did a better job at the beginning of this episode than she does. I mean, she's trying. But isn't that everybody, though? I mean, it's just, you know, you're in on your loan in your car. You can't carry a tune, but you're just belting out with whatever artist you're playing. I think we're all guilty yeah. of that. I think it was intentional. For all we know, that girl could be a beautiful singer, but I think they probably wanted that because it feels so relatable. Starts to rain, and she realizes that her car is almost out of gas. And she passes a, a well-lit, very busy gas station. She doesn't, I'm assuming she doesn't notice it because she's too in, she's too in the moment with total eclipse of the heart. So she has to stop at this 
rinky dink, you know, isolated little shack of a gas station with like one gas pump in front of it. She pulls up, honks, and all of a sudden we get Brad Dourif pounding on her window, repeating the um, Billy Bibbit stutter he had from One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. And if only this man <laughs> did not have this extreme stutter, so many things would have just turned out better. And I do feel bad for this guy, but it really is because he cannot get a single word out that this poor, poor girl does end up dying. I'm not saying it's his <laughs> fault. I'm just saying it's unfortunate. If only this man could have spoken better. <laughs> you know, yeah. I mean, I wish he would have been a little bit smarter. He, he could already tell that she was freaked out by him, right? Because she, when he, when she tells him to fill it up and she rolls down the window, like a little crack to hand him her credit card. So obviously she's already uncomfortable. So I wish he just would have went in on, on, on a little notepad and wrote down someone is in your back seat and passed it to her through the windshield when he, or window, when he gave her her credit card back. Yeah. I mean, it could have been handled better because he ends up this little, this poor dude ends up getting maced, fucking thrown through a window. I mean, and all he had to do was write down, Hey, someone's in your backseat. But, and even after all this, after this whole thing where he lures her inside saying that there's the, the issue with her credit card, of course she gets inside, she picks up the phone, she gets the busy or she gets, um, you know, the phone line. So there's clearly nobody on there. And so instantly she's like, don't touch me. And she, she maces him. She, she like, if, if he was the killer, this girl would be fine because she's, she kicks him ass. She climbs through a broken window and he finally gets out to the blacktop. And then of all times, he's able to scream, there's someone in the back seat. Took him long enough. But I want to know, though, do you feel like her reaction was a little extreme? Like uh, she picks up the phone and we get the we get the signal that it's been hung up. Right. The busy signal or whatever it is. She immediately pulls out the mace and maces. <laughs> How does she not know? Like the credit card company maybe got disconnected from her by the time, you know, it took her long enough to get in the damn gas station. Maybe they hung up. Well, and also it's the fact is like, it's not like this is a, this man is an employee at this establishment. I don't think he's going to just try to rape you at the place that he works. If it was a random man on the road who is trying to like, you know, grab at your shoulders, it's a different story. But this man is clearly like trying to communicate something. But I get it. I mean, he is definitely foreboding. This man does not look like someone I'd want grabbing on my shoulder, <laughs> especially me with my my pixie haircut and my buxom bosoms. But she she acts quick, quick. She throws that phone through that window without hesitation, and she's out of there. And she takes off driving into the night. And for a moment, to comfort herself, she starts singing Total Eclipse of the Heart again, only to realize that there is a very ominous figure in her back seat that slowly rises with a giant axe just as she notices in the rearview mirror chops stuff the figure chops her head off with the axe while she's driving i'm not sure the logistics of that I, you know the, the car would obviously go off the road and crash right well if you see in the new you see in the like a uh, clip of a news piece an overturned vehicle do you notice that? Like there is a snip, a snippet of where the body is found and you see them at the side of it. And it looks like there is an overturned vehicle in the background. So I'm assuming that this whole sequence with the window shattering was more for like the artistic visual of the, 
the bloodied axe with like the meat on the edge of it going Which through the I glass. Love. I love it. Which yeah. I, yes. Yeah. It's more of an artistic visual because I'm sure that vehicle flipped over. I don't know how the fucker in the back seat went without injury, but <laughs> but um, apparently they're fine because what that was my point yeah. is how how the person would have got out got away without being injured if the car flipped over, but they did. Still, sequence is I like the fact that it is so fast paced. It, it's it's shot beautifully. Uh, and yeah, I love the, I love two striking images in the, in this particular scene, the image of the, when the killer first sits up in the back seat and you just see the silhouette behind her as she's, you know, singing, trying to, trying to compose herself and sing along to the song. And then, and then yes, the, the scene where the ax busts through the driver's side window and it's just bloodied. And, uh, I just think those are two very well done, very striking images from this film. Yeah, and that brings us to uh, Pendleton University, which is the the major setting for our film. Actually, the rest of the film is is set within the university, and I'm okay with that because it makes a stunning setting. This is a beautiful, grand, aged college campus. Yeah, and this is where his gothic, the gothic feel of the film definitely comes in because all of these buildings definitely have an old... New England gothic feel to them. We uh, luckily we cut to Sasha. She is the first person we're introduced to. She's doing her radio show. It's a continuation of probably the radio show that was just on that we heard. And now she has a girl that's on the phone who is upset that she swallowed some cum. Have yourself a little prep boy protein shake, did ya? I mean, again, Tara Reed's best role. And she's like, I can feel him swimming around in my stomach. Oh my god, Felicia. She's a fucking moron. Oh, of course she's a Felicia, right? Yeah, she sounds like it. I like that while this whole thing's happening, Sasha's um, like assistant, the guy that's handling, like who's uh, recording her show, what have you, is just sitting there across from her with his shirt unbuttoned, chest fully bare and exposed. It's so weird. But I mean, the guy's hot, so I'm okay with it, but... Why was he? Why was his shirt on? I, I don't know, just to look sexy. And I also like feel like he never comes into play again, which is fine. I mean, he, th- there's somebody else that gets killed later in that room, but I'm pretty sure that's a random white person. I mean, I, it's very, very much like you see that in soft focus. The person that's gentleman, that gentleman that's killed, you only see them in soft focus behind Sasha. But I am convinced that person is not of the same skin color. But that's fine. Maybe she has a whole team she works with. It's under the covers with Sasha. I mean, it sounds like a pretty big to do on this campus. People love this show. Yeah, they. Do. Uh, she tells the girl, you know, don't you shouldn't be swallowing any bodily fluids. Because that is sexually unsafe. I'm like, ooh, you know, when we talked about like it follows with with you know gay people being in trouble, <sighs> we wouldn't fare well with Sasha, would we? Or we'd fare very well, and you and I would be brought on as her co-host. Imagine that, you, me, and Tara Reed. Let's wish that into fruition. Our next guest. <laughs> well, well, no, to- she would shame us. She would shame us for how much we've you know probably consumed. Swallowed, yeah. Get away from the volcano before it erupts, Troy. <laughs> no, that's the best part. <laughs> Naughty, Troy, my goodness. They introduced this uh, Stanley Hall massacre pretty quick. Uh, right off the bat, they really start cementing the concept of the Stanley Hall massacre into the viewers' minds. Because I, you could tell they really want that to be a prominent element of the story here. As we find out, it is not the Stanley Hall massacre 
that is to blame for anything that's happening. But this movie sure wants you to think it is. And I get it. It's not only do they give you a red herring, several red herrings to suspect, they give you a whole backstory as to why you would suspect them to begin with. You get an entire backstory. We move from Sasha doing under the covers with Sasha to the student center, student life center. It looks like it's just a, a place where kids hang out. Um, and Parker is there played by Michael Rosenbaum. He is there with Natalie played by Alicia Witt and Brenda played iconically by Rebecca Gayhart. and Parker. Yeah. He's telling them the story about a professor 25 years ago that just went nuts one night and went into Stanley hall and started knocking on students doors and whoever answered the door, he immediately slit their throats. So he ended up killing whole floor of students before he ended up killing himself apparently and every year parker's frat has a party to commemorate the 25th anniversary or the anniversary this happens to be the 25th of the stanley hall massacre i am shocked that the school allows that to happen I feel like that would be something that if I were, you know, within the faculty, if I were the dean of the school, that I would say, this is something we should avoid. Um, I don't need this coming up annually for people to remember that there was, in fact, a massacre that happened here on our campus. But apparently they're okay with it. Well, the dean, that we meet the dean, he denies that it even ever happened. The thing about the Stanley Hall massacre at this Pendleton College is that it's sort of hinted at that it might not have really happened, right? Um, that it is an urban legend because even Natalie's character is like, oh God, that's happened. At, that supposedly has happened at every college campus in New England. So it's not like concretely known yeah. that it's that it truly happened until towards the end of the film or towards the middle point of the film. So when you first are introduced to the Dean character, he is very dismissive of the idea that a massacre even occurred at this campus. So even like Paul's character played by Academy Award winner, Jared Leto asks Parker why nobody knows about this then. And Parker's response is the college did everything they could to cover it up. It would not be good for, for student enrollment if you know, kids knew that there was a massacre that took place at this campus. Yeah. I feel if it's something of that size, though, you know, a whole floor of students being slaughtered, that you try as you might, <laughs> try as you might, I don't think you could necessarily hide that one from the masses. But, you know, up, you know apparently that's the case. It's uh, they, They've been able to sweep it under the rug. Some believe it to be true. Some do not. And isn't that the whole purpose of having a movie like this to begin with, urban legend? Because they do tackle this quite consistently throughout the film. There's a lot of stories here where some people believe them to be true and some do not. And sometimes they do prove to be true after all. And that's where a lot of the suspicion and intrigue comes into play and makes the storyline so enjoyable to begin with. Yeah, even on the way back to their uh, to their dorm room, Natalie and Brenda stop by Stanley Hall to say Bloody Mary in front of it a couple times. They do hear a scream. They do hear these screams, which I'm wondering, what is up with that? Uh, because it's yeah. never really explored again. So it's almost like it's a supernatural element for a second because we clearly hear the screams as an audience. They clearly hear the screams because they react to it. So who would be in Stanley Hall screaming and moaning? Right. 
just random. I don't know. Uh, they right. run into Damon, played by Joshua Jackson. This cast I'm just mentioning is is stacked with young talent. They run into Damon, who startles them. Natalie heads to her dorm. There is a, another jump. There's a lot of jump scares with with people running into other people in this film. However, it doesn't really bother me because it wasn't really that big of a trope by the time this movie came out. I think jump scares to this effect have become more prevalent after this film, but this film does have a lot of jump scares with Natalie or whoever running into another character. The way they handle them though, it's almost like it's, it's, and there is a a self-awareness over the course of this movie that is actually at times quite intentionally like humorous and very much like a wink to the audience and works in the movie's favor. The moment here, for example, like when um, where Damon startles them, there's this great like musical stinger, and it's very exaggerated, but it really like it, it plays off the whole uh, vibe that they're establishing within the film and works right in its favor, and and that uh, that kind of sense of humor and that little wink to the audience consistently carries throughout the whole course of the movie, so it feels very intentional. It doesn't feel slapsticky at all. It just feels like I said very self aware which I, I enjoy. Um, I'm going to say it right now because this is going to come up consistently. I, I know it is. The character of Natalie. Right off the bat, I have to get it out. I know a lot of people don't love Natalie. They have a lot of reasons why. I love Natalie as a final girl. People often say she's whiny, that she bitches a lot, that she complains. Natalie, you come to find, has a very like intriguing backstory and is a character who's already experienced some hardships and I think she's someone who has seen, like, life a little bit earlier, like the harsh realities of life earlier than the, the other college students around her. So she's just very jaded. And she's kind of, like, hardened. You know, say what you want about Natalie. Natalie has some really great scenes over the course of this movie. And I really picked up on it this time while watching it because I was looking for reasons to defend her. Natalie's got some great fucking sequences. People can come for Natalie all they want. They can say that she, she cries 10 times over the course of the movie. You know what? I I get it, Natalie. I'd be crying too. I'm in touch with my emotions. And I think that Alicia Witt's performance as this character is just very, like, grounded in reality and feels very, like, believable and real. And she just feels like someone who's just experienced some shit. And I kind of feel for her which doesn't always happen with these movies. Um, I, I don't, you know what? I was, I was guilty of bashing on Natalie. You know that in the past, when we've mentioned this film on the, on past episodes and you've mentioned, you know, Natalie is a final girl. I've been like, then you've come for me. Like don't come for Natalie. But I will tell you that upon these last few watchings, for this episode she does not nearly bother me as much anymore as she did like when i first saw the film maybe it's because i'm older and i'm like grumpy and jaded like she is so it doesn't really bother me as much and i don't find her as grating because like you said i can relate to her i will say though there are certain points in the film where i do feel like she is being a bitch (laughs) <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah uh based on what she is responsible for doing she's she i think she tries to amp up the yeah. victim card way too much and and down and downplay her responsibility yeah. and what happened and i can see why that would rub some people the oh, wrong yeah. way but we'll get there we're gonna keep moving along here so natalie gets back to her dorm room she turns the 
her light on and her fucking roommate, goth Daniel Harris. I live for goth Daniel Harris. And, but I can tell, but can I tell you, I do not remember her character, Tasha being such a fucking cunt. Oh my God. Every single thing she says is bitchy. Oh, I did not remember that at all. We just did our Patreon episode of top three bitches. Uh, I would have, this bitch should be on. She is horrible. Well, not only that, Natalie tries to be so nice to her. <laughs> I know. And she's like, don't talk to me. Well, she storms out. There's a moment where Natalie sees one of her bottles that says lithium. And I'm going to say this right now. I'm I'm bipolar and I take fucking lithium. And you know what? I don't treat people like that at all. I'm quite pleasant. Can I be a bitch sometimes? Yes. But not to the extent a bitch that one Daniel Harris as Tosh is to Natalie. Natalie's like, hey, how are you? And she's like, God damn it! Like, she's getting railed by some random guy. She's like, turn the lights off! Like, it's just, okay, girl, like, do your thing. Poor Natalie. And it's Daniel Harris. Hey, I, I live for Daniel Harris, but I'm just saying, I, oh, I, whew, this girl. So, yeah, she's getting railed by some skinny, milky, white dude. <laughs> Some malnourished, <laughs> ghostly individual that seems right up her character's alley. L- literally. <laughs> <laughs> Yells at Natalie to turn off the light. The, the next day, it is uh, a class, Professor Wexler's class, who is played by Robert England, who we all know as Freddy Krueger. He is t- basically teaching the idea of urban legends. Uh, he mentions the first, the most popular, probably urban legend out there, the one about the babysitter and the man upstairs. And even Brenda's like, oh, that happened to a girl in my town. And he's like, yeah, sure it did. And Brenda makes a quip about, you know, the the real purpose of the urban legend, because he says the urban legend started as a warning to young women that they better keep an eye on their children. And she's like, well, no, it actually sounds like the, the lesson is not to babysit. He makes her go up to the front of the class. Gives her some Pop Rocks to eat. Remember Pop Rocks? I love Pop Rocks. I do. I know. They're so fun. Uh, Gives her some Pop Rocks to eat. Offers her a can of soda. She refuses. And he's like, well, why are you refusing? Is it maybe something you've heard about Pop Rocks and soda? And she's like, yeah. If you do that, your intestines are going to burst. And he's like, do you know anybody that that happened to? And she's like, yeah, Mikey from Life Serial, <laughs> which we all heard that story when we were kids, right? Yeah. I heard it. Yeah. He, he shows her a picture of Mikey. Mikey's live and well, you know, so Damon comes up, volunteers. He's like, I'll do it. So he eats the Pop Rocks, drinks the soda, and then goes into convulsions, pretends to die with the foam coming out of his mouth. But he's just joking. It's just a joke, people. Calm down. It's just a joke. A few little things about this sequence. First of all, this movie is chock full of sequences that are, I would say, referenced or fondly looked back on, acknowledged uh, by fans of the genre as being standout moments within the genre to begin with. And this moment is one of those that I just see come up time and time again, just because it's such a fun, quick little scene for a lot of reasons. First, again, the pacing in this film is great. Excellent. Across the board. Um, This scene features Robert England in a role that, like, some movies, we've seen so many 
cameo appearances from genre actors appearing as like a teacher, a professor, some figurehead that, you know, is used briefly and disposed of. They make great usage of Robert England in this film. He's not in a ton of it, but when he's there, he's very present. They give him a lot of great dialogue. He has a lot of meat to chew on. This character is not a throwaway whatsoever. This whole little moment with the Pop Rocks, it's so memorable because, yes, we have all heard the story before. Even referencing Mikey, you know, it it is, they do such a good job of not just using like big, well-known, like age-old urban legends. Like they don't just use like all of the classic standards. They even think to like use ones that are like maybe a little bit more obscure. Like when they reference the roller coaster, um, roller coaster of love, like later in the movie and they have that whole that though, like the myth of the girl screaming in the background as she's being killed. Yeah. Uh, another urban legend that might be like you know people know it, but not as widely known as something as like you know the the killer in the backseat of the car or the babysitter trope. Uh, they do just such a really good job of making usage of their time to explore as much of that territory as possible, and I think that's one of the greatest appeals of this movie. It is stacked, stacked, brimming with great material urban legend material that we're familiar with. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, the screenwriter obviously knew these legends quite well. Um, obviously, he embedded them flawlessly into this film because, like I said, it's even little quips like, like you mentioned with the roller coaster of love or uh, other things that pop up that are all urban legends. On the way out of Professor Wixler's class, they're walking. Um, Brenda and Natalie are walking and they see Reese taking all the school newspapers. Basically what it is, is there's an article that has been written about Michelle Mancini being murdered. And so right on the front page. And my question is, would a, st- like, would a school newspaper like really be the first way that the students would find out about their, about one of their classmates being murdered because nobody knows that Michelle Mancini was murdered until they see Paul's article on the front, which begs the question, how did Paul find out about it and why doesn't anybody else know about it? But they don't. We do have to acknowledge that the, the, the fact that Michelle Mancini was in a scene with Brad Dorif is very, very self-aware that last name. Uh huh. Oh yeah. Don Mancini. Don Mancini. So I just I do want to go back and just again a hat tip to fans of of the genre. There's so many gems in this movie, from the talent featured to little comments, little little acknowledgments. Uh, it's just really again brimming with that um, uh, fan favors it does over the course of the film. Um, also, I want to acknowledge Reese, though briefly introduced, is the horror icon that we deserve, that we gay men deserve. Um, I live for Reese. She's everything I've ever wanted in a horror uh, heroine. And uh, she luckily gets quite a bit of screen time coming up here. <laughs> yeah, you get a kick out of Reese. Uh, but this is the first time you get to you get to meet her and the dean. Paul approaches them about taking the newspaper. He's like, "You can't do that." And the dean right away is very, of course, defensive of the college, uh, and tells Paul that he seems like he's the only lunatic that's around on campus. Um, and Reese makes the comment that U S news and world report named Pendleton college, the safest school in the country. And she is going to keep it that way. Just single handedly. And she motherfucking does. Uh, I do want to acknowledge that the attendance name it is stated was, um, Michael McDonald <laughs> as in like the singer, Michael, Michael McDonald. 
Uh, I don't know where that came from, but that that was the attendant's name. It's mentioned. They do have a moment where they talk about Michelle, uh, again, within their group. And it's pretty clear that uh, Natalie is is affected by this. She doesn't discuss it with them, but Alicia Witt does a very good job of playing Natalie's internalized emotions. You can see it in her eyes and her face and her body language. Uh, unfortunately, none of her friends ever pick up on it and make a cruel cutting commentary about Michelle, such as, oh, I knew her and I'm going to miss her too because she gave great head. Get it? Uh, <laughs> um, a Joshua Jackson with a platinum Blonde dye job that looks fucking awful. Uh, but um, it, his character, Damon, is very much established to be the jokester. He doesn't do a lot over the course of the film, but they do a really good job of any moments he has. He's kind of a dick. He's always cracking little jokes. He's playing pranks. If he's not there doing it, they're referencing it. Uh, so it's very much established that he's kind of the asshole of the group. Uh, and he does a really good job with the role for the time that he's given. Yeah, he's not given a lot of time, but he, yeah, he, it, he, I think he was just trying to distance himself from his Pacey character from Dawson's Creek, hence the blonde hair and everything. Well, do, do you know the story behind that blonde hair and why he has that blonde hair? No, I don't. So, well, and he also has that blonde hair in um, Cruel Intentions, if you remember. Um, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So at that time... Um, Dawson's Creek, they were trying to establish that they had full control over the, the studio behind it was trying to establish that they had full control over their talent in every aspect, like how they dressed their appearances down to their hair. Yeah. And so he did that to like rebel against the studio and he went platinum blonde, which like in the moment, I'm sure he felt very brave, but now looking back on it, he's like, Oh my God, why did I do that? Yeah. Natalie actually denies even knowing Michelle Mancini, which comes back into play a little bit later. She once again goes back to her dorm room. Tasha is there. Natalie very politely apologizes for you know turning the light on last night and tasha's response don't let it happen again and natalie then picks up the phone she wants to call somebody and uh tasha is on the internet now young folks you aren't going to remember this but like in the late 90s internet went through your phone your landline so if you ever wanted to get on the internet, you actually had to use dial up and it dialed up through your phone line so that your home phone line would be busy if someone called or if someone tried to use the phone. Okay. Just explaining that because I know we probably have you know, a lot of people that were born after that, this time listening to us. Listening to these two, these these two, two elders. elders. <laughs> schooling them on old school AOL internet. But she, but Tasha is using a, a chat room. Natalie wants to use the phone and, and Tasha's like, this is my line too slams the phone down and, and just storms out of the room. We do hear that there's a message from Brenda, but there's also a message from her mother who is checking on her because of what happened to Michelle. So it's a little hint that Natalie knows what knows Michelle. And that is even hit, hit home even harder when she hangs up the phone and pulls out her old high school yearbook. And we see that Michelle and her we're both co-keep captains of their high school cheerleading team. Oh my god, they look like such bitches. Like, you know, these girls were just unbearable. Uh, and I do think it's pretty much established that, like, Michelle, even in her one scene, like, 
the moment she had with Brad Dorf, she was kind of a bitch to him up to the point that she, you know, maced him without hesitation. Um, I feel like these two girls were two completely different directions. And eventually uh, even the character of Natalie does state that after an incident transpired that we will learn about, they completely fell out of touch. I completely understand why all things considered, but it feels like Natalie is very much like distanced herself from all aspects of her life at that point. I do think that they do a really nice job of, giving you the audience tidbits of information without it feeling forced. It's not like they're ever like storyline in your face. Like this whole little voicemail from the mom just checking in feels very natural. This is something I would completely suspect would happen considering the circumstances. So I think the story, like again, the pacing, it does a really good job of just keeping things moving, but it never, like it never moves too fast. It never jumps to the gun and it never is slow and dragging. It's constantly moving at a nice trot. And I love it. We also get uh, at this moment, Damon who pops in to check on Natalie. So we, as the audience are thinking, because we don't really know much about him at this point. He's only been in, you know, a couple other scenes. He did make the quip about head, but you know what college it's college boy, you know, we can kind of forgive his dark sense of humor at that point. But this moment we think, Oh, look at this guy. He's really sweet. He's checking on Natalie. He's like, I noticed that you're feeling down. I, I'm just checking on you. He's like, do you want to go somewhere to talk? She agrees. They go get in his car. He gives her a beer. Hey, this is a girl that drinks beer. I'm all for her. You know, she won my heart right there. I love the fact that his car won't start. But when it finally does, I mentioned this, the song, I don't want to wait, pops on for a second. I thought that was a really clever touch. Well, and there's that, that sense of humor right there that, that keeps this movie feeling really fresh. It's never, um, it's never like aggressively humorous. It's not like it's cracking wisecracks. It's just very like aware of a, the story it's telling the fact that the story it's telling is about urban legends. And like, even within the cast that's involved, it's aware of like the level of talent that it has. There's a lot of horror movie, uh, staples in this film. So it just does a great job of respecting the material. Uh, and these little jokes, these little quips that they add into this, the storyline feel very like they're acknowledging what it is like, you know, what genre they're t- they're playing with, and what what uh, what kind of talent they have involved. It, it, I don't know. It feels very uh, very natural. They do a really good job with the humor. I love the line. Uh, Parker said he's going to pierce Rudy's nose, and Natalie says Rudy's a dog. And he says no reason he can't be hip. <laughs> I lo- I love that joke. Yeah, I mean, all the humor is just very. Um, it's aged well. I'll say that the humor has aged really well. They go park at a a deserted spot and she does confide in him that her and Michelle were friends, but she really doesn't want to talk about what happened. They had a falling out. She really doesn't, like you said, she doesn't associate with her anymore. So that's what she's kind of bummed about. He tells her the story of his girlfriend dying of some sickness and that he, he, he feels like he needs love but he's been selfish because he hasn't given it away. And he's like, you know what, Natalie, you know what you look like you need some love and I'm here to give it to you. And he's literally trying to fuck this girl after he just came in the room. And we thought that he's just really cared about what she was going through. Nope. He just wants some, you know, pussy. However, she is very much able to handle herself. She punches him in the face 
calls her he calls her a bitch after she punches him in the face because he, he tries to like re- go and get on top of her. I do I I mean I shouldn't say I like. I I do appreciate the fact that she only has to tell him no like once. You know what I mean and he gets the hint. She punches him, she tells him no. It doesn't turn into like this like date rapey type scenario where he's continues to force himself on her. Um he, he's like okay fine, I'm going. I'll, I'll take you home. Let me go piss first. He goes outside, takes a piss, and while he's out there, he is attacked from behind with someone that throws a rope around his neck and pulls him to the ground. Yeah, this this starts to unfold into quite a, quite a sequence. Really quick regarding this whole moment between him and Natalie, I think one of the reasons, what you just said, the fact that he, he doesn't push it too, too much is, um, and in Natalie's favor, for what I'm about to say. Because she's hardened, because she's jaded, because she's not putting up with bullshit. Uh, I, I think Natalie is somebody who is just a little more evolved than a lot of the kind of stupid college students that surround her. So she just doesn't really want to like fuck around with that nonsense. And there is a moment like when he starts to tell her the story, at first she believes him. And she's so quick to be like genuinely like caring of his situation when he's, cause he's like, I had a girlfriend that died and she's like, Oh my God, I'm so sorry. And then like so quickly his story unravels and you see her face just drop and she's over it. And as soon as he realizes that she is not fucking around with this and there is no chance in hell, I think he just knows that this girl is not the, she is not the one to fuck around with. Natalie is not looking to play games. So yeah, I appreciate that he just drops it because he knows there's no chance. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. I mean, she, like I said, she can d- totally take care of herself. Um, and uh, yeah, he, she, he probably recognizes that uh, he's taken too long. So she gets out of the car to go look for him. And as she's outside, she immediately, I mean, the, the hooded figure comes like right, right to her kind of in a, in a shocking moment we see we can see now the the full kind of get up it's like a giant parka with a fur hooded fur lined hood big hood on it she runs back in the car gets in tries to start it the 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 killer throws a rope around the bumper of the car and, t- and ties it to a tree so as natalie's trying to start the car and pull away she can't because the rope is holding the car there uh and we do hear like all of a sudden pounding and scratching on the roof of the car. And we see that Damon is tied, tied to a tree above the car and he is hanging there. And as she is, she finally like gets the car, like the figure gets on the hood, like smashes the windshield. So she flips the car into gear and pulls, pulls away, causes Damon to basically lift into the air and start to, fucking strangled to death. I mean, it's a very elaborate scene. Yeah. It's a very well executed scene too, because the killer obviously knows what is going to happen if she drives away and like pops down on the, on the windshield to like startle Natalie to ensure she drives forward. Cause she's hesitating. She's waiting for Damon. Um, and so the killer kind of like, instigates it to keep the ball rolling to make sure she tries to speed away uh causing him to obviously be strangled and lift up into the air i do appreciate in this whole moment where the killer startles natalie and stacy from cherry falls should take some fucking lessons from natalie natalie 
instantly books around the car and gets into the driver's seat of the vehicle and starts to drive away. She ain't fucking around. She doesn't trip. She doesn't stumble. She doesn't sit in the car and like wait for help to come. She locks the doors. She pulls up the windshield. She puts the keys in the gas and she tries to start the vehicle. The only reason the car doesn't start is because earlier it was shown that it's an old car. It takes a minute to fucking warm up. So she's trying to get the fuck out of there, but it it takes the killer, you know, smacking down on the glass to get her to put her pedal to the metal and speed away. When that happens, the body rises up. uh, And then as she's trying to pull away, the the, the tree is keeping the car from driving any further because it's tied to the bumper. And the killer startles her enough that she goes and she pushes into reverse and the body drops. And it goes right through the windshield and it is this really great body reveal. I think this whole sequence plays out in a way that's just so grand and big for the first kill, like the first major kill aside from, you know, the opening victim for the first of the killers to be killed off. It is really expertly handled. And I do want to say that in the sense of, you know, their choice of the first victim within like the major players killing off Joshua Jackson really gives me like a Drew Barrymore scream vibe because he is one of the bigger names at this time within the film. You do expect him to go on uh, and probably have a major role within the film. And they do kill him off like right off the bat. He's the first of the core characters to go. So it does feel like kind of shocking and surprising that this kind of bigger named actor would be so disposable. Yeah, I do like the whole, I just like how this whole plays out. I love the fact that the the figure gets up and kicks the windshield in and then she throws the car into reverse and backs into the tree and his body just crashes through the windshield basically right in front of her. It's, it's one of the more, I would say, brutal looking deaths in the film because the film doesn't have a, the film isn't really graphic or gory, but this is one of the standout death sequences in the film. She, uh, Natalie has the good sense to get out and run. She runs, she goes into Reese's office who Reese is obviously a huge fan of, of, um, Pam Greer. I mean, who isn't Foxy Brown? She's quoting the show. She's quoting the movie and, uh, Natalie takes Reese to where th- this just happened. She's like, Damon's dead. She takes him. Everything's gone though. There's no car. Damon's not there. Natalie's like, this is impossible. He was just here. He's dead. It's the same person that killed him, killed Michelle. And Reese is like, well, that's not possible because they arrested the gas station attendant this morning. So apparently they think that the gas station attendant, Brad Dourif, is the one who killed Michelle. I would would assume forensics would be pretty easy to figure out that that wasn't the case. But they have him arrested. I like with this sequence, you're really kind of you get your first real big exposure to Reese's character. And in some ways, like, is she kind of a walking stereotype? Yes. Like in, you know, it's late nineties. I think these care, like a lot of characters of color were not written to their most fleshed out full extent. However, like she is played very favorably and she's played to be a very strong, likable and empowering character. She's very self-assured and she proves to be like one of the smartest characters within this film And I love, as her character evolves over the course of the movie, she really is, like, a very strong, kick-ass individual. And I think they do her right. And I I love this character. I love that she gets so much time. Um, She becomes a pivotal part of the film. She's definitely one of the standout elements 
of the film. So I just, I fucking love her. I love her. Uh, the next uh, day, they're discussing what happened with Damon. And everyone in the group is kind of blowing Damon's death off as what is uh, to assume to be a practical joke, which could feel a bit forced, but they really give it a lot of like, a good chunk of time to really discuss why this is something that they would find reasonable on behalf of this character. It's very thoroughly explained. Uh, they're very much, it feels like they're tying the urban legend aspect directly into him wanting to take this and like run with this. The fact that they've been learning about urban legends in class and everything. Uh, and he's using that material to play a joke on Natalie. Uh, it seems like this is very much part of who this character is and something he would do. And then the fact that he would be gone even is explained uh, that he would be on, I think it was like a skiing trip, a snowboarding trip or something with some of his friends. So they give you all of these reasons for why it's plausible that this guy would do something like this and then just kind of up and disappear. But it is kind of clear that Natalie does not completely buy it. She even calls the location they claimed he was going to to confirm that he's there. She does. It also, it also, this real quick, this is also the first time that she kind of makes the connection that uh, there could be an urban legend theme playing a part in the deaths because, you know, Parker recognizes the story, the fact that her setup, how this happened to Damon sounds exactly like an urban legend, you know, the, the parking at Lover's Lane. And so it is made, there's a connection that's made right then and there. Yeah. Natalie does go to these this creepy library. This is day. This is episode the second episode in a row where we have a, have a creepy library because we had one in Cherry Falls. As she's there, we do get a a glimpse of a figure that passes across the stack. So we see somebody's watching her. She grabs her Encyclopedia of Urban Legends, but she runs into Sasha, who of course has the Karma Sutra, which I'm sure the college would have plenty of copies of, right? Sasha, you fucking whore. I love her. God, I love her. She's like, oh, look what I found. The original Karma Sutra book. So they sit down and look at the encyclopedia and they go through and, and are just looking at some of the more popular urban legends that are in the encyclopedia. And they come across the gang high beam initiation one. And Sasha's like, well, that's not a legend. That, that's actually happened. And you can tell that Natalie's a little bit uncomfortable with it. And Natalie also pulls out the card to see who the last person to check the book out was. And it was Damon. Cause this is the old school where you actually, if you checked out a book, your name was written on a little card. <laughs> yeah. This, this killer is an individual who does cross all their T's and dot all their I's. I got to say like, there is a lot of planning that goes into these murders. This killer is not stupid. And there are lots of little details that this killer thinks of. So good on them. Back at the dorm room, Tasha is trying to hook up with a guy via chat room. Uh, she's chatting with somebody. She, he bites and says, hey, yeah, I, I'll, I'll hook up with you. I'm close. I got to say in their conversation, Troy, she's like, what What do you like to get into? And he says, lithium. And I'm like, is that a, is that a turn on? Because like, again, like I said, I, I use lithium and all that does is kill my penis. My sex drive is non-existent. So, like, unless she wants a limp dick smacking on her thighs, like, I don't know what this gal's looking for playing around with lithium, aside from maybe some moments of <laughs> lack of emotion and acting like a robot, because that's all it does is it just drains you of emotions. But, uh, okay, whatever whatever gets you off, 
lithium girl. Yeah, it's a it's a weird. It was a weird little uh, response to put in there. Like, but I mean, it turns her on. She's like, okay. God, she looks fucking hot in that corset, Daniel Harris. Yeah, she goes and she runs into the bathroom real quick, and before she goes in the bathroom to get ready, she asks him where he's at. And so she runs in the bathroom, you know, gets gets ready, comes back in, and he's responded because she asks him, "What room are you in?" He has responded, "Yours," which is kind of creepy. Comes up behind her, grabs her, throws her on the bed, starts strangling her as Natalie returns. She hears the moaning. Thinks it's fucking. She thinks, she thinks it's fucking, so she doesn't turn on the light. She puts on her headphones and goes to bed <laughs> as poor Tasha strangled to death. But you know what? She, maybe she deserves it because she is a she bitch. She is a bitch. And I got to say, this is another kill here, this whole Tosh sequence, that um, when we come upon the reveal coming up the next morning here, uh, again, they could have made this way gorier, way more violent. You could have seen the risks getting cut and what have you with this reveal, they choose to instead show less uh, and just make it more about uh, the impact of the suspense and the style of all of it. And I think it works in its favor. I think this is an example of one of my favorite kill reveals that doesn't really show a ton, but it still really pays off because when Natalie finds the body the next morning, she wakes up, she sees a pool of blood, she pulls the, the blanket back, Tosh is laying there dead with her with her wrist cut. And Natalie turns around and on the wall behind her, you see, aren't you glad you didn't turn on the light painted in blood? And it's such a great payoff. I mean, it's such a great reveal. You don't need to have anything crazy gory. I mean, sure, there's blood, yeah, and everything. But they don't really show, they don't linger on the body reveal too long. It's more about the shock of what's on the wall. And I really think it's, quite a great reveal nonetheless oh i love it i love it i love the framing of it where you just see natalie like back up after she folds the covers and finds tasha's body there with 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 looks like the wrists have been slit uh, but then behind her yeah you see it written in blood aren't you glad you didn't turn on the light uh we get a we get a short uh, a small scene of her body being wheeled out and some bitch is like she says to the paramedic you might want to check her pulse because she's looked like that for years they're like, well, that's real compassionate there, random girl. Yeah, the dean shows up again with Reese, and um, they talk to Natalie, who is in a, maybe her fifth mock turtleneck at this time. And I, if there's one thing I love, it's a redhead in a mock turtleneck. Give me more of them. Um, and so they're they're talking to her about the fact that this is suspected to be a suicide. And Natalie, at this point, she does not buy it. She knows that somebody was in the room, but when they ask, "Did you see anybody?" because it was so dark. Uh, she says no, she couldn't clearly see anyone, but she's convinced that someone is in the room with her. They say it's, you know, it, it really looks to be a suicide, nothing more. And that's kind of all there is to it. Um, Natalie obviously won't have that. Natalie is thoroughly convinced that there is more to what's going on than meets the eye. As I would be too, because Natalie is even like, well, what about what was written on the wall? And the Dean's like, oh, that was just a morbid suicide note. They definitely tie in the mental illness too. Like again, this is all written very well, so like it's kind of plausible. Yeah, because the dean is like, "Did you know that she was taking antidepressants?" Uh, yeah, so it's really they just dismiss, dismiss it as a suicide. Natalie wants to go be alone, so she goes outside. Paul approaches her, and immediately he's like, pulls out the yearbook photo of her and Michelle, and he's like, "Can you explain this?" Yeah, for being a writer for a college newspaper, Paul takes. 
his gig way too seriously. Like, I know he really wants to be a journalist, but like, okay, dude, this girl just experienced a body reveal, literally what seems to be minutes ago, and here you are throwing her past trauma in her face. Like, slow it down. But he's he's really determined to get some of this information out of her. Um, and so he asks her if she wants to talk off the record. And so they do take some time to have a conversation where they really start to layer in that Stanley Hall massacre backstory thicker and thicker. They really want to make sure that we're really getting to know about what happened at the Stanley Hall. Yeah, they even go into – he even goes into like the research room to try to find the article, like the collection of articles from 1973. But of course that volume is missing. Uh, the creepy janitor's out there doing his mopping his floors, and Paul's like, "Hey, do you know anything about Stanley Hall?" And the janitor's like, "No, I don't." And uh, Natalie's like, "Please, if you know anything, please tell us." And all this creepy janitor says is, "Talk to Wexler." Real quiet. Literally, the single most foreboding janitor in the history of cinema, Ugh. and we've seen some creepy janitors in our day. Um, but they, you know what? One thing I got to say at this point is. And as far as red herrings go, this this film does a phenomenal job of building up an array of very plausible red herrings, one after another. Uh, and at this point, we really start to get handed a lot of reasons why we would think that Professor Wexler would be the obvious red herring. Um, his we we learn he's involved with this massacre that happened. Um, they they break into his office. They find a whole bunch of things that tie him in to the murders from the fur line jacket, which everybody in this town seems to own. <laughs> Everyone, Everyone has the exact save. They him. find an ax, lo and behold. Uh, and it's just the motive seems all too perfect. But it, I mean, it really feels like the plausible rationale that you would suspect this guy would be the killer. And they, he comes back into the room and they, they, they hide in like one of his awful, like with a little closet room and they think he's gone and when they think he's gone, he they sneak back out into his main office and they open the door and he's standing right there. Um, so we get them in the dean's office now with Wexler there and Reese. And Paul is basically accusing the, the Wexler of being a killer. Um, he says there was an axe in there and Wexler's like, no, the axe was a prop. Paul's like, OK, so tell me what you know about the Stanley massacre. At this point, the dean asks uh, Reese and Wexler to leave because he wants to be alone. Um, this is when he confronts Natalie. He's like, I pulled your record and you have on your criminal record, you have an endangerment, reckless endangerment charge. Can you explain that? And uh, he's like, if we would have known that we would have never accepted you to this university. And then he proceeds to tell Paul that he is being fired from the college newspaper which as we know is a huge part of Paul's life. That's his career ambition. So this really is devastating to him when they leave. He's obviously upset. He asks Natalie about this reckless endangerment charge. And she says she doesn't want to talk about it and storms away. Again, I got to say that Natalie's personal journey really, it, it makes a lot of sense as to why she operates the way she does and why she's so cold and distant and bitchy with certain people. Uh, she's got a lot of paranoia, but I mean, at this point, it makes so much sense why she's operating the way she is. And her paranoia is being passed off as being like dramatic or implausible or unreasonable by everyone. And she's going through all these experiences right now that are, she's very aware that something more is going on and nobody around her 
will really listen to her or take the time to consider her her angle on this. Um, and she's just way more of a complex character than a lot of the final girls we get. You just kind of have to take time to really look into her, like her backstory and why she is operating the way she does. I mean, she is very proactive, though. And she actually is someone who, at this point, her anxiety, her paranoia causes her to be very defensive, but not just of herself, also of her friends. There's this whole sequence that comes up here where she goes to look for Brenda and she sees her swimming in this in, in the pool on, on campus. And she sees that fur-lined jacket that she'd seen before approaching her, thinking it's the killer, thinking her friend's in danger. And she's quick to pick up a chair and basically start to bash in a windshield trying to alert Brenda as she's swimming because she thinks she's going to be attacked only to see that now this is now the third person to own this jacket (laughs) and it's just the swim coach in the same fucking coat. But I mean, she's very proactive and she's very, you know, much considerate of those around her that she cares about. And she walks Brenda out out of the the swimming meet or the swim practice, and this is when she confides in Brenda that she did in fact know Michelle Mancini, and tells her the the whole story about this prank that they pulled, that they used the gang initiation high beam prank on someone one night where they shut Michelle shut her shut her uh, headlights off, and the first car that flashed them they turned around and chased at a high speed. And unfortunately the, the other car lost control flew you know, drove off the road, flipped over and the drivers died. The courts were lenient with them and they only got probation. But Natalie says she was never able to forgive Michelle or herself. And that's why she has distanced herself from Michelle for the last several years. And of course, Brenda's response is, well, you need to come to this party tonight and have some fun. So we do know that, you know, we do get this whole, it's starting to at least come a little bit more full circle as far as Natalie's connection to Michelle and and possible urban legends, right? Yeah. At the same time, Paul is in his office when he finds a strategically placed article on his desk about Wexler being the sole survivor of the Stanley Hall massacre. So almost like, you know, two, two major plot reveals there in a matter of, you know, a minute of screen time, we find out Natalie was involved with an urban legend prank gone wrong. And that Wexler, Professor Wexler was a survivor of the Stanley Hall massacre. Yeah. Paul looks up into the doorway and, as, and sees the janitor kind of just ominously looming before he just walks away, implying that he's the one that placed this article in the desk. Uh, this janitor is meddling and it seems to have a vendetta against Wexler. I'm going to say right now that Vendetta is never explained, but I mean, at least we're getting, again, more fuel added to the fire of this potential red herring that makes it seem more and more plausible that this is what we should expect. We, the viewers, should expect that this is going to somehow tie in to this massacre that happened, which is, I think, a pretty crafty uh, move in the sense of storytelling because we're expecting it to go one way. And it actually goes another. Reese, meanwhile, is being very fucking sensible and productive. And the dean basically just shoots her down and, and, and prevents this queen from excelling at her job and thus gets what's coming to him. Yes. He will not let her bring any more security guards on campus, even though that they know this big party is going on this night, the 25th anniversary party that the frat house is having. She leaves as the dean is getting in the car a figure 
underneath the car reaches out and cuts his Achilles tendon. I always hate that. Ugh. Ugh, the pain, the level I of pain. Know, I know. The old fucker falls to the ground and starts crawling away. The killer opens his car, puts it in, you know, drive and just lets it roll on top of this Dean until it knocks into him and pushes him down on these um, spikes that cause, you know, the, the road spikes. And this is a pretty graphic death, too, because you see his body, you see the car hit him and his body go right into these fucking spikes. Yeah, you know, this movie, because it is very selective about the the, the actual gore it chooses to show, uh, or the extreme violence, it's normally, you know, very artistic in how it handles these things, and very intentional. So when it does show a moment of, like, extreme violence, it's all the more shocking. And this scene with the Dean is pretty graphic so when you see it you're actually like whoa that's a lot more than i expected especially with this fucking old ian mckellen like gentleman just getting what's coming to him um i do have to say that reese had to book her ass out of there because she like turns and walks away and within seconds <laughs> the dean is on the ground crawling like like i don't know how she didn't hear this or uh, draw her attention back but she must have gotten the fuck out of there. Yeah. So now it is party night at the frat and it looks like a fun time. The dog is even drinking. Oh my God. This dog is the star of the film. They, they put a siphon in its mouth and let it drink. There's the, the roller coaster of love song playing. And then the weird guys telling Sasha the scream at the beginning of the song is a real scream of a woman being killed from a 911 call. A notorious myth. Yeah. Uh, Natalie shows up to the party. Paul immediately get, goes to her and is like, Stanley Hall was real. He shows her the article. They now both think that it is Professor Wexler that's killing. Natalie goes outside with Paul, and this is where she breaks down. I'm so scared and is like crying and shit. What? She's crying again. It's like the 10th time she's What crying. did I ever? And this is when she's like, what did I ever do to anybody? Well, bitch, you got somebody killed. I mean, that's one thing. Don't play the victim, honey. I mean, you could have stopped Michelle from doing what she did. They kiss. Brenda catches them. And we have to mention throughout this film, Brenda wants to fuck Paul like there's no tomorrow. Oh, my God. Understandably so. Oh, he is so cute. In God this. damn it. They would make a beautiful couple, those two. Well, not so much anymore because she freaks out and is like, oh, my God, Natalie, you couldn't help yourself, could you? And like throws the beer at her and storms off crying. Yeah, she's she's heartbroken, but she's in a really good fucking dress. She's in this blue dress. Her knockers are pushed all the way up. I mean, Rebecca Gayhart is a view of beauty, a vision of beauty. I, I have to say, she is stunning, but she's also very sad, understandable. I do want to acknowledge really quick one thing I don't want to pass up. Did you notice, Troy, that when the dog is doing the beer bong, that his nose is actually also pierced? Yeah, he does. He has a full septum piercing, which means that they these characters did pierce this dog's nose, which is horrible, but also hilarious. But I love that dog. He's such a king. Uh, and I, I don't want to get too far ahead, but this movie does do something with this dog, though, that is very upsetting for me. And it, it is a very hard pill to swallow. Uh, if you don't like violence against animals, I, I would fast forward through what's coming up in the party here in a little bit. Yeah, there is a cutaway scene to Reese exploring um, the one of the classroom buildings. She goes into, she hears glass breaking. It's coming from Wexler's office. She goes into his office. We notice a window is like broken and then the axe that was there, she doesn't know, but we as the audience know where the axe was because we saw it earlier, is now gone. And as she's like walking back out, she slips in this gigantic pool of blood. 
Yeah, she does. When she's wandering the halls of the building, she does run into that fucking mysterious janitor again. Oh, yeah. She's like, you got to be out of the building by 10 o'clock. And he's just being mysterious. And I will say, give me a buddy comedy with those two. Imagine those two on a road trip across country having the, the time of their lives. But yeah, so um, we go back to the party. And uh, Paul basically confronts everyone at the party, suggesting that they should cancel it because of what's happening. He suspects that there is actually a killer on the loose who has a vendetta out because of the massacre that took place. Paul is convinced that this is inspired by the massacre. Uh, He's quickly mocked, and it's suggested that uh, he is creating the story to gain attention and help his career. Well, they all, uh, Parker also suggests that he could, he could be the killer in order to be getting this attention so that he has a story. He, he says this in front of everyone. Sasha is like, you are a, why do you have to be such a jerk? And she's like, I'm going to the radio station. So she goes, she leaves. Do you see the blonde lesbian that she gets in the car with and drives her off? (laughs) Yeah. Tell me more about that blonde lesbian. I want to know more. I think that's the one. I think that's the one that gets killed here in a few minutes. Yeah. Yeah. Parker gets a phone call saying he's going to die tonight. And he looks at the caller ID and it says it's Damon. And Parker's like, oh, is this the legend about the calls coming from inside the house? And the killer's like, no, it's the one about the old lady who dried her dog in the microwave. Oh, my God. This is what I was trying to. I know. Warn everybody. we'll, we'll We'll just skim over it real quick. He runs down, checks the microwave, the dog. Indeed, has been put in the microwave and it's exploded. You don't see a lot of it, but you see no, enough. You, it's like the gremlin. It's like the gremlin and gremlins when the mother sh- puts it in the microwave. Right? Yeah, yeah. But this is a poor, innocent uh, white. What is it? It's a West Highland Terrier. Oh my been, god, he's so pure. Yeah. So he runs into the bathroom to throw up, and he's immediately knocked out. Uh, he wakes up. He's tied to the toilet, and this killer. This this kill happens really quick. Like I expected a little bit more when I saw like he was tied to the toilet, Yep. but the killer comes immediately in, shoves a siphon down his throat and pours drain cleaner. Ding. That's the end of him. Yeah. It's, it's very quick. A few things about the sequence. First of all, losing the dog doesn't sit well with me, but I love dogs. So that's, I mean, I do too. I mean, that's why we just kind of skim over it. You know, I mean, no, no need to dwell. on I know. No need to. He, he will be missed. He that, will be missed. That dog with that septum piercing, whatever his name was. What, uh, it was he had a name. It was like Ro- 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 you mentioned Rossi. it earlier in the episode. Rudy was Rudy. it Rudy something, something like, like that. that yeah. But anyway, so um, you know, this movie gets some comparisons to Scream here and there. I don't see it. I won't. I, I for the most part, I don't see it. I definitely think it's a slasher that stands on its own two feet in its own regard. But this sequence here does feel very Scream, mostly because the killer is using a voice distorter over the phone. And so because of that, it just has a very scream vibe. They're taunting each other. Uh, he and Parker, you know, the killer and Parker, they're playing kind of playing back and forth. And the dialogue just sounds something like something very much you've heard in a scream movie before. So it does have scream vibes. Um, aside from that, just like you said, Trey, the kill itself, probably out of all the kills in this movie, and I'm, I like almost every single kill in this movie, this one has the least of an impact for me, simply because it's just feels very rushed and very like disorienting almost because it, it seems like it just moves a little too quick. Like he's knocked out and then he wakes back up and then he's got a tube down his throat and then he's dead. Um, I would have loved for it to have taken its time more because Parker's character was 
probably the least likable of all the friends. Like, intentionally so. He's the asshole of the group. He's just kind of a dick. So I would love to have seen him, like, get a little bit more of a graphic kill. But it's not a bad kill. It's just in comparison to the others, which this movie is stacked with them. It would suck to get drain cleaner poured down your throat. I mean, that's not a pleasant way to die. Yeah. It just, it's, it just, it's rushed. It's yes, rushed. It's rushed. In yeah. the meantime, Reese has tried to call the police, but they say they can't get there right, right away because of the storm and they put her on hold. So she's like, fuck this. I got to take matters in my own hands. Sasha's at her radio station taking a call and we see behind her that the killer has come into the other room and kills the call screener like behind her and the call that she's on is disconnect. So she's like, what the fuck? So she goes to the window to look, to see what her, you know, coworker is doing or her call screener is doing. And the killer busts the glass with an ax. And Natalie, you can basically hear the, that she's still on air. So you, everyone that's listening to the stations can still hear the screams. And a couple of the people think that she's just playing a practical joke because it's the anniversary of the Stanley Hall massacre. Um, Natalie doesn't buy it. She like takes off running through the rain to this station. And there is a, 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 I would say a satisfying chase scene between the killer and Sasha to the point where there's a point where Sasha gets thrown over the ledge of stairs and is hanging on by her hands as the killer like smashes down at him with the ax and she drops to the floor below. There's an elevator. There's the there's the tense elevator scene that we've seen it many times, like at Halloween too, where where uh, Sasha runs into the elevator and is pushing the buttons, and the door closes just in time. Yeah, I think one of the things that makes the scene work, honestly, is Tara Reid. I mean, I've heard plenty of jokes cracked and comments made about Tara Reid as an actress, and that's all fine and good, but um, she is actually quite capable in this film and this chase sequence is i would say one of the more memorable ones of the era really because of her that whole stair sequence is actually quite quite suspenseful and her scream like it's she's a very like hoarse gravelly scream that sounds very like strained and sounds very like real it doesn't sound like she's faking her way through it she she sounds scared i buy her performance over the course of this whole sequence I was just going to say her fear seems very real. I mean, even to the point where she's begging not to kill her because she wasn't, doesn't want to die. Yeah. That really affects me Yeah, for some reason. I don't know why. I Same. mean, because she's so good. She does get off the elevator. She gets into a room and hides at the same time. Natalie comes into this building and Sasha sees her and runs to the window and starts banging on it. Well, the killer comes in the room. She wasn't quiet. I mean, her, her mistake but the killer comes in the room and natalie basically has to watch as the killer hacks her to death with an axe but as the killer comes in sasha's like cowering she's like please i don't want to die i don't want to die like pleading and you know it, it, we watch these movies all the time but i guess it just hits you different when you actually hear someone begging for their life yeah like saying they don't want to die and the killer just goes ahead and starts hacking the shit out of her anyways well and like this character like if you also think about it like she just had this whole sequence where she's running these goddamn platform boots. She falls several I'm like it looks like at least a story and a half down the staircase. She's limping. She's clearly like injured herself. She's literally just hiding in this corner out of exhaustion and it just feels like a very like plausible sequence. Like at this point she's injured, she has nowhere else to go. She's trapped in this corner and she just like 
cowers there as the killer just takes an axe to her. And they choose to, they choose not to show the brutality of the murder. It's all shown from Natalie's POV, but in a way it's even more effective. And then after the fact, the killer turns to Natalie and gives her this like delicate little wave. That's, I would say one of the, the most memorable moments in the film is that single wave, that moment. It's so like the killer is so aware of what they're doing and how it's affecting Natalie. And it just seems so cruel. When this is kind of when the film kicks into high gear or to, to the, to the finale, she runs out, she runs into Paul. She tells him Sasha's dead. He's like, Oh my God, I've, I've been trying to call. I can't get a hold of anyone because the phone's dead. And there's a moment where she, you know, picks up the phone to listen to it. And he turns around. He's like, what are you doing? I told you phone was dead. You can tell she kind of suspects him a little bit. He's like, I'm, I'm on, I'm on your side, Natalie. Let's let's, we got to go to town. We got to get to town, get, get on the phone. So they run out to head to his vehicle and they run into Brenda. Dun, dun, dun. Who's freaking out. She's like, what's going on? I heard Sasha. And they're like, we got to go. We got to go. Reese has gone into the building because she actually heard Sasha screams over the radio as well. She goes in and she does find Sasha's dead body. We don't see the body, but we see her reaction to it. So it can't be good. Right. I would love to have seen the body. I will say you see like her hand, like up in the air, bloody hand, which I thought was, was pretty cool. Yeah. One thing I want to say really quick, just at the point we're at now with this whole sequence leading into the girls and Paul, I think this is proof of of, of, of good storytelling and of good execution because I will say I remember viewing this movie the first time to this day. I remember still not knowing who to trust, who to doubt and who the killer was. And a lot of films within the genre by this point, it's pretty fucking easy to round it down. And here, like this movie still has you guessing. It still has you thinking, well, it could be this person. It could be this person. It could be this person. I don't know where this person is. Like this film does a great job of keeping you guessing and keeping you thinking about like what the outcome could possibly be. You really do not know yet. And you're closing in on, like you said, you're closing in on the finale. So the fact that you're still kept in the suspense of it all is really a testament to good storytelling. Oh, absolutely. I, 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 I did not guess who the killer was when I first saw this, especially at this point, because it is, there's so much suspicion been placed on all of these different characters and they all have different motivations for it. And actually the one that ends up being the killer is probably the one that I least likely thought would. Right. Yeah. Yep. So Paul stops at this gas station. He goes in to use the phone. Um, Brenda and Natalie are left in the car and Brenda's like, you know what? You and Paul like each other. I'm happy for you. At the same time, they hear a chiming. It's like a cell phone or a beeper going off. And it's the same chiming or beeper we heard at the beginning of the film when Professor Wexler was giving his lecture. It's, it, it interrupted his lecture. It's his beeper or cell phone. They look at each other. They go back, back out to the, they, they leave the car to go back to the hatch, the back trunk of his vehicle. And they open it. And Wexler's dead body is in the back of his car. Obviously, this is not good. They it puts the huge suspicion on Paul as being the killer. So they take the fuck off running. They run and Paul sees them and he chases them. And there's like this little chase through the woods between Natalie, Brenda and Paul. At one moment, Natalie and Brenda get separated and Natalie stops and she's like, Brenda. And then all you hear is like Brenda give like this blood curling scream. 
And so Natalie keeps running and she runs out into the road and who's coming down the road in his handy pickup truck, the fucking janitor. Oh yeah. This whole little chase sequence leading up to this moment with the janitor, it's brief, but God, it's atmospheric. Like they're running through the, like this forest, but like at one point, Natalie, when she separates from Brenda, she runs ahead of her and leaves her behind. Basically she's in like this area of the woods. That's like all of these small thin little trees it's very creepy and um uh it just it just has a great atmosphere again this movie just oozes with good atmosphere but this chase sequence is really quite effective and it carries over to this moment where the janitor picks her up in his pickup truck and there's this kind of tense sequence between the two of them were yet again, lo and behold, this janitor owns that same fucking jacket. Like, is there one jacket sold in this town? That fur line jacket? There must everyone's be. got it. Because yeah, it's it's right on his front seat. He's like, You cold, you can put on my jacket. I'm like, how many fucking people own this jacket? God damn it. Like, and it's not like it's a it's not like it's a you know, a basic looking jacket, right? I mean, this is a it has fur around the hood. I mean it's this must be a very, very cold cold town but before anything can happen with her suspicions of this gentleman she tries to get out of the car before she can actually do it a vehicle drives by and the headlights are out and what does he do he he flashes his blinkers on him or he flashes his headlights she immediately knows what's going to happen and she gives a great blood curdling scream you know telling him not to do it but it's too late he flashes the lights and the vehicle swerves around and starts speeding right after them. Yeah. To the point where, guess what? It runs them off the road. They see it pulls up to the side of them and you look and you see who the driver is this person wearing this damn parka swerves into him, drives him off the road. The car goes sw- basically flying off the road to the point where it flips out. It flips around. The driver's knocked out. So Natalie is able to get out and run. And as she's running back to campus she is in front of stanley hall and she hears brenda screaming and we see one window illuminated at the top floor so she goes into stanley hall by crawling in through a window and going upstairs to room 202 where she goes inside timidly and we get a very cool i like this scene body reveal of all the the bodies that have been killed so far you get uh, Parker's body falls out of a closet. Fucking Professor Wexler's body is there. Damon drops down, hanging from a rope. Yeah, uh, Parker's body looked as though it was covered in like bubbles, or I don't know. I mean, I don't know if there's maybe more to the kill that we didn't get to see, but uh, you, you know, he does have like black tar coming out of his mouth. So at least his for his death being the least satisfying of everybody's, at least you get to see more of that reveal. I'll say that there is a moment here prior to her going inside where we do see Reese basically gearing up and ready to take on whatever's about to come her way. And she does take out her fucking gun. And you know, this bitch has been waiting for a chance to kill with this fucking gun. And she looks at a a poster of Pam Greer and she like nods to it. She's like, I'm ready. Uh, So, you know, Reese is coming into play and she's going to fucking kick some ass. Uh, At least she better. But yeah, this whole sequence of the body reveals, Really, really nice, effective, climactic sequence. Also, like, let's just acknowledge Stanley Hall for a moment. What a great finale location. I mean, it is... Sprawling, it's creepy, it's gothic. Lit to 
yeah, it's lit to perfection. It's just so eerie. Uh, it's really, really effective. Yeah. So she proceeds farther into the room and she until she comes to another room and it's filled with candles. And there sprawled out on a bed is Brenda. Who looks very much like um, like uh, Michael Myers' sister, <laughs> Judith, <laughs> in the reveal from the original Halloween. It, it looks very much to be kind of almost a hat tip. Like Annie, you're talking about. We're oh, talking yeah, I'm sorry. Annie, yeah, yeah. It looks Annie, like Annie. Who sprawled on the bed with the Judith Myers tombstone. With the tombstone, yeah. Yeah. Pretty, yeah. But she looks dead. So, you know, uh, Tosh, or um, Natalie, you know, obviously is, freaks out and sits down next to her and is like looking around. And all of a sudden we see. Brenda sit up and Natalie turns around. She fucking punches her in the face and knocks her out. Oh my God. That fucking whore eyes, wild hair inflated. Oh my God. This- and this, this leads, I mean, this is leads to the big killer reveal and the, 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 the rationale monologue. Natalie comes to, and she is tied to the bed. Rebecca Gayhart's performance here is as big as her hair. But it's fucking Her hair just gets bigger, bigger and bigger. bigger as the scene. Yeah, but it's fucking everything. I mean, it is it is honestly my favorite killer reveal of all time. It's filled with just great little quips and one liners. Uh, just a lot of crazy or in her terms, eccentric. But it's it's really motivated by what ends to be it proves to be the love for her boyfriend, David. Ding, 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 ding. Exactly. Who was the victim of the headlights game that Natalie was involved with. What a fucking, what a fucking clever, clever way to tie this all together. You know what I mean? Like we've seen some pretty loose motives in slasher films before or loosely connected, loosely tied together motives. This one, come on, this is one of the best. And her performance is just phenomenal. It is. And I would say like we talk about this film being compared to scream. I I don't see it either, but even like this whole killer reveal and the motive is way more intriguing to me than the, than the motive and reveal and scream. I mean, first of all, Rebecca Gayhart carried this all off by herself. She didn't have to have a fucking partner. Thank you. This bitch was hanging people, you know, climbing fucking stairs, throwing people over stairs. This, she did it all herself. Yeah. But yeah, her performance in this, because it's such a drastic 180 from how she has been portrayed through the entire film. Yeah. As just this sweet, you know, devoted best friend. Yeah. Who just wants the best for her friend, Natalie. And now it's like you flip a switch and you got this frizzy haired, crazy you know, and I, I like that Jamie had mentioned it was kind of it rides the the line between like camp campiness and over the top, but it does it very expertly, I think. Well, because you you when you learn the motivation behind it and you can tell that she's been pretty traumatized by it uh, and that her love for her, you know, her boyfriend, who her fiance, I mean, he, he they were going to get married, she says it's clear that she was madly in love with this individual and the rage she feels over losing him. Uh, really it, it, it's something that has fueled her in seeking out her vengeance. And she even says, she says payback's a bitch. Isn't it Natalie? Like the way she delivers these lines though, it's just so cutting and cold and angry. And there's just such a viciousness to everything she says and her wild eyes, those big blue eyes, just, it just, it, it has a level of, insanity to it that is palpable that i i can't think of many other performances that can match this moment 
Yeah. So yeah, her whole thing is that they killed her boyfriend or her fiance with an urban legend so that she's now she's getting her revenge by killing them and her friends with urban legends. And Natalie's urban legend death is going to be the infamous kidney heist. She's also figured it out that she is going to blame Wexler for the murder. She even says, isn't it fucking beautiful? It's so goddamn tight. Because she already has all this evidence planted against Wexler, and it's it's perfect because he's he was a survivor. He went crazy on the anniversary of you know the the, the night that he was attacked, and he's getting his revenge. I mean, it's 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 a huge performance. It's it's very effective. There is the moment then when she starts to cut into Natalie with the scalpel. She like pokes her first, and she's like, "Oh, is this where the kidney is?" And stabs into her flesh. But then she's like, "I don't know. I'm just gonna cut you open." And the first organ I come to, I'm gonna grab. (laughs) And she like literally starts slicing this girl open. Oh my god! Yeah, it's it's vicious. It really is vicious. Until Reese shows up with the gun, and it's like, "Freeze, you crazy bitch!" Ran a cop to the rescue. Yeah, so she puts Brenda up against the wall, and she's like, I'm going to eat. She's like, don't you fucking move, you crazy-ass bitch. She doesn't see that Brenda takes out a switchblade and turns around and slices poor Reese across the chest with it. In the meantime, this has given Natalie enough time to get free. Reese and Brenda struggle for the gun. Brenda gets a hold of it first and shoots Reese in the side. Oh, violently. You think Reese is dead. I mean... I did think Reese was dead. Oh, my, we can't lose her. The showdown between them, if I could see that, if I could have gotten a 40-minute showdown between these two broads, I would fucking watch it in a heartbeat. But yeah, for a moment, you you think you've lost Reese, and we all mourn. <laughs> Brenda turns the gun on uh, Natalie, and she, she has this great line. It's one of my favorite ones that she says, a bullet through the head, not exactly an urban legend, but in the essence of time. <laughs> like, like she's like reasoning with herself and you like really just see the crazy coming out. I fucking love it. Oh, it's hilarious. As she's getting ready to shoot Brenda, Paul comes in clapping and he's like, good job. Bravo. This sounds like a plan to me. And he's like, you know, he's given into her. And for a second, Natalie's like, are you fucking serious? She can't tell if he's being serious or not. He's like, I just ask that you give me all the details of the murders that Wexler did wink wink so that i can write an article about it and she's like oh that would be good for your career wouldn't it paul he's like yeah and she's like and we would be so fucking hot together <laughs> and he's like i need you to give me the gun you know and she's like oh, <laughs> you're cute paul but you're not that cute and she's basically gonna shoot shoot them she's like which one should i shoot first and she starts doing eeny meeny miny mo mo <laughs> and fucking who's who's still alive but it's reese she comes up and shoots that fucking brenda bitch in the arm this finally gives natalie a chance to get the best of brenda and grabs the gun and holds it up and she's preparing to shoot her and brenda has again a great fucking line. What, you gonna shoot me, Natalie? What kind of friend are you? <laughs> and Natalie fucking shoots her, and she goes backwards through the window in a glorious death, or so we think. She falls out, the, flies out the, the, the top window, hits the ground. Yeah, I mean, I think that would kill anybody. But hey, Reese is hurt. Paul and Brenda or Paul and uh, Natalie assure her that they're going to go get help. And she's like, please hurry. So they leave, they get in his car, they're driving. 
And it's a very sweet moment. They're all, you know, or Natalie's like, do you think that Reese is going to be okay? And Paul's like, yeah, she'll be fine. She'll be fine. She's a tough, she's a tough broad. The paramedics are already on their way. And Natty's like, you know what? This is going to become an urban legend one day too. And, you know, details will be changed. You know, Brenda will become a man. You'll become a cop. And Paul's like, well, if this is an urban legend, at what point do we get a twist? Well, right now, because Brenda comes out of the backseat with a fucking axe (laughs) and swings that fucking axe and a big old fight. And so she bashes Paul in the head with the dull adult side of it. And he's swerving the car. She is in full fucking fight mode attacking Natalie. She actually gets Natalie on the floor and is getting ready to raise the accents, bring it down when Paul swerves his car into the side of the bridge, causing her Brenda should have had her seatbelt on <laughs> to fly out the fucking windshield head first off the bridge, 50 feet down into the cold, icy water below. Very reminiscent. I must add, And I think this is purposely done because we've mentioned a lot of little nods to other films, but this is very much like the end of Terror Train. Yeah. Yeah. This movie does a good job of having little visuals and little uh, bits of imagery that hark back to other films of the genre, but it never ever feels like it's ripping them off. It's just more like acknowledging their presence within the world of slasher Uh history, you know? Yeah. And so they get out and they look and they see her body just floating lifeless at the in the waters below and uh, they hug and that's the end of their story for now because we cut to sometime in the future students are sitting around in their student hall talking about these murders and the one says her body was never found and the other kids are like oh god that's just an urban legend one kid's like yeah uh nat brenda her she was my cousin's roommate you know just you know doing what we do with typical urban legends And all of a sudden we see somebody, a figure lean forward and say, well, I believe you. And the dude's like, see, thank you. And she's like, but you didn't tell it right. Listen up guys. Cause this is how the story really goes. She leans into camera and who is it? It is Rebecca Gayhart looking sensible with her hair pulled back. What looking sensible. What an, what a fucking ending. I mean, like t- talk about any uh, good fucking note. They know their strengths in this movie, and one of them is Rebecca Gayhart. Yeah, I love this ending so much, and I I really wish the sequel would have explored this particular ending a lot more. Um, yeah. I mean, Urban Legends Final Cut is a fun sequel. Uh, yeah, I I but it's doesn't really have the the magic that this one does. Um, no. and it it would have been uh, it would have been better to either do what Jamie's idea was or just explore this whole ending more. But um, yeah, I mean, that's, that's urban legend. You get a, you get a epic performance from Rebecca Gayhart. And I think that, you know, her performance in the horror community, especially like among queer horror fans is very revered, very revered. And rightfully so. I mean, she's like the crazy, you know, over the top, you know, killer reveal that we all, want to see and all want to play at some points apparently roger yeah i mean ain't that the truth that the fact of the matter absolutely i mean she is the most memorable reveal for me but also in the sense of female reveals um uh, like come on like one of the fucking best and one of the most unexpected which makes for such a great twist 
I, I would have never guessed her as the killer. Like I said, when I saw this the first time, I had no idea. Um, I, I don't think that it's an obvious. She does such a great job throughout the film playing just like the innocent best friend. And there's never any mo- moment where you suspect her at all because they're painting all these other red herrings. And this killer is so like vicious and physical that in my mind, and I hate to say this, but I was good. I, I figured the killer would be a man, a man. I think a lot of people think that, and that's something that I've actually heard is kind of like an argument against her performance before. But I'll say this, like I specifically looked for that this time watching through this film. And if you watch some of these moments of like, she gets thrown around a lot, you know, when she's, when she's in her full killer attire, she, it's quite physical at at times, but it's also quite a feminine. I feel like I, I'm, I, I wish I would have thought to ask, Jamie, if the killer body double was played by a man or a woman. No, it was played by a man. It was you know, it doesn't always, it certainly doesn't feel like that to me watching it now, knowing uh, it's a woman. I don't know. I see. I still think it's the, the killer. When the killer is in costume, I think it comes off as masculine. I do. I do. And, you know, but that's me. I, I can see at certain points maybe where you could get that. But like the killer in this film is so physical and is doing just inflicting like horrifically violent, brutal deaths and, and, and whatnot on these victims. And to me, you know, I, and it just seemed like it was something a man would do because women generally aren't that vicious and unrelenting when it comes to murder. Not that they can't be, but in the annals of slasher history is mainly what I'm speaking of. You don't see a lot of female killers that are this physical this vicious i mean the whole elaborate setup with uh damon you know hanging him and getting him up in a tree i mean come on look think of the strength that would take yeah but they might have been intentional to keep us guessing yeah know, oh, I, i'm i'm so i'm sure it was yeah, yeah i'm sure it was and just hacking poor sasha to death as yeah. she sits there and, and pleads for her life but i get it and i love the reveal i i love the the, the fact that this killer is so that Brenda is so vicious and she can, she's up there with the best of the slasher villains in my opinion. Oh, but yeah. I would have liked to have seen her character explored more in the sequel. I know they, she has a tiny little cameo, but it's a silly cameo. It does feel throwaway, especially for, yeah. for how the, for the kind of impression that she left with the, with the first film, you, you definitely want more. Um, and I don't hate the sequel either. I really don't. Yeah, I don't either. I don't either. I don't. I don't hate the sequel either. I think the sequels can is a lot of fun, and it has a pretty decent cast as well. You know, Joey Lawrence and Hart Lochner from Terror Train. So yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, Urban Legend. I mean, well, there's not much left to say about it. We sang it praises with Jamie. I mean, we both, especially you. I know you love this film to death, but I, I do believe this is one of the standout films of the n- late '90s. I know a lot of people, Roger, that like this film more than Scream. Um, and watching it this time around, I can see why this feels like a far more sophisticated film than Scream. Yeah, I, I love Scream. I love what Scream did to the genre. And I, maybe without Scream, there wouldn't have been this film. This film would have probably never got greenlit. But I feel like this film is far more sophisticated. It's far more complex it handles i mean it handles certain scenes a lot better i mean this opening to scream is iconic that'll never be topped but take that opening scene take everything that comes after the opening scene and then compare it to this film and i can totally see why people would prefer this over scream but it is one of the it's one of the best slasher films of the 90s by far uh, and probably one of the best slasher films 
I mean, if you had to make a list of, you know, top 50 or a hundred slasher films, this would definitely make the cut. I mean, I think it's strong enough. Yeah. Oh no. I mean, I, I think it's a combination of a lot of strong playing factors, great cast. And I did not know that he was so young when he directed this. And that's just even, that's just even more impressive that he was able to pull off such a beautiful looking film and, and pull out really good performances from his cast and, and have an eye for camera work and, and things like that, that you wouldn't expect a young first time director, you know, first time with a feature film backed by a studio to do. Um, you can tell he put a lot of care into this and that he wanted it to be something special, like he said. So winding up here, I just got to say, yeah, I'm just going to leave it at this. Natalie is not as bad as Final Girl as I thought. I'll just leave it at that. Thank you. Oh, my God. Yeah, I, you know, I, you just use the word sophisticated, and I think that's the perfect term for why this film uh, works for me. It, it does feel polished and elegant and uh, classier than most of the films of the genre. And I think there's a lot of things that it has playing in its favor. It, I mean, it has a really strong cast. It has a lot of personality. Uh, it, it weaves the story in a way that never feels forced or unbelievable. And it manages to take you by surprise. And, you know, you, you we've seen this story told the slasher tropes done over and over again, you know, the, the same basic setup of a group of, of people being hunted by a mass killer. We've seen it so many times. You always think you know what you're going to get. This still managed to make it feel fresh and surprising. And, and so definitely, um, definitely one of the best and my personal favorite slasher um, because it has just so much character. Um, I, I will say that because we had such a wonderful interview with Jamie um, that uh, we, Troy and I definitely try to, you know, move through this at a slightly faster pace, uh, just to respect everyone's time frame. Who wants to listen to these two gays talk for two, three hours? We're, well, we're, we're still coming up on three hours though, but th- just know that that is, if you, if we move through the movie a little quicker than we normally do, that's why, because we knew we had that hour of interview tacked onto the beginning, which we hope you guys, that was great. I, I was really happy with some of the information that he was able to share about this film. So I could sing this movie's praises for five hours, you know, it's just, yeah, I mean, I don't think there's anything more we can say. We both are huge fans of this film, and now I'm a huger fan of Jamie Blanks. I cannot wait to see more from him. Hopefully, there will be more from him coming. He he hinted at it. I cannot wait to hear what it is because he's never made. He has not made a bad feature film, in my opinion. I think his other two films don't get nearly the credit they deserve. It's all about urban legend and Valentine, and if those are the only two Jamie Blanks films you you um you know, please check out Storm Warning and nature oh what's the what's his other one nature's nature's way um i believe you know what i'm talking about roger i'm not seeing it no i'm not familiar with it i'll have to check it out yeah it's um it has james caviezel in it yeah you know i, I i'm a huge fan of the films i've seen by jamie I, I i adore and after talking with him i want to see all of his work and i want to see more from him so i'm very eager to uh see more from him it's let me correct myself because so that you guys can look at the long the real the, the, the film it's nature's grave okay so please check out storm warning and nature's grave because even those two films are really well done and i think you would uh you'll like them as horror fans but yeah that's urban legend guys we are so thrilled with this episode. Thank you for sticking with us for almost three hours with this. Hopefully the interview was worth it. And then our, you know, analysis of the film, our review kept you entertained. 
but that is urban legend. You you don't even know how thrilled both me and Roger are to have had the opportunity to have Jamie on our show, our little our little independently produced podcast that we record out of a little room in our, in each of our homes. We're not a studio, you know, we don't have a studio, we don't have studio equipment, you know, but we, we have a passion for doing this and we hope that comes through with each of our episodes, but to have this opportunity, me, I mean, I would never, my little gay whore loving fan in the nineties would have heart would have never imagined that I would be talking to the director of urban legend as I sat in the theater and watched it. So, uh, guys, thank you for sticking with us. Again, real quick, we do have the Patreon, patreon.com slash Dark Knight of the Podcast, where we have lots of bonus content up so far and we'll have plenty more. Give us a review on Apple Podcasts, even though three hours of your time, you might be like, oh, God, I can't deal with these guys anymore. <laughs> but please give us a nice review. And, you know, this is only the beginning of things to come. Trust us. Trust us. We know this. We we realize this is this is big for us, and so it's opening a lot of doors. That's all we're going to say. So uh, we appreciate you. Yeah, very much, very much. And um, you know, I know our next episode. That's your choice, Troy. The next one. It's going to be a good one. Yeah, real quick. The next episode, guys, is the uh, we're going back to the kind of '80s slasher. Roots, and this one is an 80s slasher comedy that I know it was put out by a company, Roger, that you are not a huge fan of, but I, I, I like this film, and because it's like spring and like spring break time, I wanted to cover a film that kind of dealt with with spring break. So we are covering the 1986 film entitled Blood Hook. Have you seen Bloodhook, Roger? Bloodhook. I've never seen Okay, well, you are going to have a blast with Bloodhook. It is about, well, we're not going to get into it. It's all, I know it's available like on Tubi and all these streaming networks, so give it a watch. It was, I think it was initially released by Troma, although it is not a Troma film. It does not feel like a Troma film at all. It's not, it's not cheesy. It's not, you know, it's, it's, it's about a killer stalking a bunch of people on their spring break that are on a walleye fishing tournament in Wisconsin. But the killer's weapon of choice is a giant, it was a fishing pole with a giant lure on it that oh, wow. he, well, that's that unique. he hooks people with. And then when he catches them and kills them, he puts them on stringers and he has like his, his little dock that he has all his victims on stringers like fish. Oh, wow. Okay. I mean like that, I'll take it. <laughs> Fuck. Fucking blood hook. Bring it up. Blood hook. <laughs> All right, guys. So busy month. We've had great reviews. It follows with Wayne Gonzalez. We've had fucking Jamie Blanks. I think that's the pinnacle of my uh, our career right there. But uh, yeah. anyway, guys, thank you so much. We know this was a longer episode, but we hope it was worth it. All right. So you guys have a good night and be sure to check out Blood Hook. Blood hook. And again, thank you to Jamie Blank. Thank you, Jamie. We you've made our gay little hearts so full of just whatever. Gratitude. Gaiety. Gaiety and gratitude. <laughs> All right, guys. Good night. Good night.